It's that time of the week again. You are about to participate in a great adventure. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop? What the hell do you think you're doing? It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris. Oh my God! As they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. It's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. As well as the music of today. Excuse me while I whip this out. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Who are those guys? Digital Kill the Radio Star starts Come on, quit stalling! Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. Now listen, you may not recognize my voice as being a host, but today I'm taking over the host chair. I was asked by Sir David Hudson to take it over, and this is it. So I'm, I'm taking over the Digital Killed uh, hosting chair. Is that okay with you, David? It's perfectly fine. Listen, I am excited. I'm excited. I'm a little bit nervous, i got to admit, though, because this is my first time to take over somebody else's podcast. Y'all may recognize my voice from a few other podcasts that I've done with Dave. Uh, we did, uh, what, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Um, we did... Appetite for Destruction. Appetite for Destruction. We Pink did the Floyd post, in general. Pink Floyd in general. And then also the post-Oasis show. Noel, Noel Gallagher, yeah. Yeah. All right, so today we're going to talk about Allison Chains. This is a, this podcast has been a long time coming. You know, we talked about doing this months and months ago. And, uh, you know, I went over to your house, what, three, four months ago? Mm-hmm. And we had a vinyl night, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome night. Well, we repeated that. You came over to my house this time. And we'll have to start off by talking about that. But today we're going to talk about Alice in Chains. We're going to give a little bit of a background. We're going to give a top 10, our top 10 Alice in Chains songs. Um, and so I'm looking forward to this, man. But let's start off with Mule. What in the world happened to us last night? So uh, if you're a government Mule fan, they recently released a, uh, a two-concert set basically called uh, Live at the Capitol Theater. And... Uh, there's volume one and volume two on vinyl. Now that does not um, have all the songs that from those two nights, but uh, each uh, vinyl pressing it's it's two uh, it's two records. But if you go like on Spotify or Tidal or iTunes, they have um, the entire show on there. So it's it's probably about half the songs make made it onto these two uh, records. And so Kyle has this like really awesome setup at his house with a uh, digital uh, music streamer, and then he's got a uh, entry level Audio Technica uh, turntable. And so we were comparing um, the different systems last night, and we put on the uh, Volume One of the Mule. And first of all, the musicianship, as always, with anything Warren Haynes does, is just phenomenal. But uh, and the songs sound great, and he purposely picked songs that they haven't really put out on a lot of other live albums and really went heavy on the last two albums, which 
are the last album may be my favorite album they've ever done, and the album before that, Shout, was is pretty high up there. But Kyle and I decided after we listened to one one or two sides on vinyl to switch over to the digital streamer, and it was overwhelmingly better sounding on vinyl. Yeah, and so in before that though, we listened to um, what was the very first thing we put on. It was um, oh, it was unplugged because you've got a story about. Uh, you met the guy who do, who did all the yeah. mixing of that. Yeah, tell him. We tell him about that again. So just to yeah. So uh, last year at Rock and Pod, Chris and I interviewed Toby Wright, who is a very very well known producer and audio engineer. Uh, he's worked with uh, pretty much uh, just about anybody from um, uh, the late '80s on that uh, has has been in new metal or heavy metal or hard rock uh, and some alternative uh, music. And so when we had him on at, at Rock and Pod, we asked him, like, what's your favorite thing you've ever done? What are you most proud of? And he said recording and mixing Alice in Chains Unplugged, which you were telling me amongst audiophiles is kind of a, a go-to album to test out your system, right? Yeah, because it's got, it's got high dynamic range. And so that's one thing that audiophiles love. And it's just the thing is just recorded beautifully, and you've got a great mix of instruments on there. It's not overly compressed, and what an audiophile likes, uh, in particular in a recording, not even the reproduction of the recording, but in just the recording itself, uh, in general, they appreciate not a ton of production, really. And it's really hard to find albums, especially rock albums, that haven't been overproduced. And what I mean by that is... You know, when you when you strum a guitar, they'll put a compressor on it. Actually, we're, we have a compressor on our voices right now, just so if we laugh, it doesn't go too high and clip out. So there's a really good reason why you would have that. But um, for Alice in Chains, uh, or at least for this album, rather, uh, it just uh, an acoustic guitar sounds like an acoustic guitar strum. If you can close your eyes and you have a fantastic system in front of you, it sounds like an acoustic guitar is right in front of you. That's the audiophile's dream, is to close their eyes and hear the band in front of them. And so this was a natural, because you brought your vinyl over, you've never heard my system before. Um, I don't have the best, I mean, this is literally entry-level $115 Audio-Technica, the thing that you can buy like off the shelf at Best Buy. Like, it's not special at all. I want to get something better, but that's literally the weakest link in my chain. I've been upgrading the rest of my system, so I was excited to have you hear it because you bought a better, you got the U-Turn Audio uh, turntable with the the kind of the mid range, not not quite the top of the range cartridge and and various things, and so I was excited for you to hear it, especially because you're familiar with that album and you're familiar with your stuff like uh, Black Crows, right? So I was excited for you to hear that, but also wanted to do some A B comparisons between the turntable and the digital music streamer. In the digital music streamer, I got it is essentially has two top of the line like Mercedes Benz level. DAX, digital um, analog converters in it, which makes everything sound, hopefully you know, should make it sound uh, the best that it can. And I've got some uh, Clips, uh, Clips um, uh, 5.1 setup. This is like a mix between my, my home theater and my, I guess my stereo, if you want to call it that. And I won't go through all each of the components, but I was that was a natural fit. As soon as you got here, I said, well, God, we just had this conversation uh, over, over supper, so like, let's, let's put on uh, Allison Chains Unplugged. And it sounded great. But then I swapped over from the vinyl to the digital music streamer. And I mean... It's a, the, the streamer sounded much better. Right? And so then we kind of... We, since we were in the streaming world... And, and that's what I thought. Well, okay, that's the, clearly the weakest link in my chain is the, is the record player. This is confirmation of that. We just took one of the best produced albums and, and also an audiophile's 
uh, I guess, pick uh, for a rock album, be it being an acoustic rock album, and it sounded better on the streamer. So the, to me, this was confirmation, like, I got to get a better turntable. We go through some Black Crows songs, and you're, you know, I, I pointed out a couple of, what was the song that the snare drum rattled? Yeah, on Jealous Again, if you have a really good system and you turn it up, you when uh, Rich Robinson goes to play the intro, you can hear the the punch from the, the amplifiers rattling Steve Gorman's snare drum. Yeah. Which is, I've, I've listened to that song a million times, and I've never never heard that yeah and so to me that's what told me now now granted you could say if, if you're a music lover and you don't necessarily care to hear the snare drum rattle you say well that's not a big deal to me that's a huge deal to me to hear something you have never heard in a song that you've been listening to for 30 or 25 years or something like that that's fantastic and so anyway we listened through a, a good bit of alice uh excuse me uh black crow songs and then as we as we went on the night we said okay well this is a vinyl night let's get rid of the digital you know because um, after all, digital killed the radio star, right? So, I mean, let's just get back to vinyl. And we went back to vinyl, and um, I forgot what we danced around to, but did we immediately put on Warren Haynes then, or did we do... We did Pink Floyd after that, didn't we? Yeah, we did Did the Floyd. Oh, we put our Tedeschi truck signs That's on. That's right. We put Tedeschi truck signs, and we listened We listened to that whole thing, didn't mm-hmm. we? Yeah. Listen to that whole thing, except the 7-inch that came with there. I thought that was a good... I mean, it was. It sounded good. I mean, there's. It was. I wasn't blown away by the sound, um, but it still sounded really, really good. And um, and I, I really should say I wasn't blown away by the sound. I probably was, but after hearing the Mule, so we put on volume one alone of Mule, and it just popped. We listened to the whole thing, and then I said, actually, maybe when we flipped the sides, I said, listen, let's compare uh, Beautifully Broken. You know, well, let's compare that song on my digital streamer. And I was totally expecting what we already heard to sound even better. And I was going to be totally shocked if it did, quite frankly, because I couldn't imagine it being any better. We turned on that digital streamer, and it just sounded muddy. And I thought, wow, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> I, do have the weakest, I, do got, I do have the weakest link, and I've still got to fix that weakest link, I think. But it just goes to show, man, if it's mastered right and mixed and mastered right for vinyl, man, that can sound good. Well, you got to think... <clears throat> The way uh, Warren Haynes is so meticulous, uh, you know, with his playing and how things sound, and he's an old school guy. Y- you almost got to think when they're mastering this, they're mastering it with vinyl in mind, right? Right. And uh, I think that's for sure what was going on. Uh, well, in this case, it sounds like they forgot about the digital form. Yeah. You know, I mean, they truly just said, "Okay, we got this perfect on vinyl." Let's, yeah, like, you know, like, like on the, the digital version, the the bass was over was overwhelming, mm-hmm. um, and it just. Uh, the mid range just sounded muddy to me. It sounded like there was a blanket over the amp, uh, over the the speakers. You yeah, know? I think that's a great way to great way to say it. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, we need to do like an audio file episode. Like now that I'm inviting myself onto your podcast <laughs> and like taking over, uh, but just to talk about the signal chain and like and, and maybe your people wouldn't nerd out about that. Mine certainly would, but. Um, but anyway, uh, on my other podcast, the Mad Madrigals, we, we're kind of we've only done season one at this point, and I'm, I'm mentioning it now because we'll, I'll bring it back up later. Because uh, there was a word I, was, I thought that I was mispronouncing for my entire life, and I, I just found out I was not. So we'll, that'll be a little teaser. We'll get into that later. So, um, but anyway, the, the goal of an audio file is to have you know that blanket lifted. You know, every every single time you improve a component, you hypothetically improve uh, what that sound is, and so. Um, let's move on to Alice in Chains, right? The topic of the day. So to do a little bit of background, I'm going to, you're probably going to have to pick up some of this because I, d- I didn't do 
the background preparing that I would typically do uh, in this case in terms of having the chronology right and all that. But here's what I know. So I picked up a book um, that was a that was an autobiography, not, I'm sorry, not an, a biography. It was written by a journalist, and it was actually, you could call it unauthorized in, in the preface of the book. The author actually says, like, I really hate the word unauthorized. I hate the fact that you have these unauthorized, because it sounds like salacious, you know? Right. It sounds like Mick Waller just did whatever he wanted to do and wrote about Guns N' Roses or whoever, right? And, and then the band, of course, hates it. Well, Allison Chains is notorious about having a no-comment, um, you know, policy about anything, basically, other than what they, what they control. So this guy went out, and he reached out to... Um, he reached out to essentially like the beginnings of Alice in Chains and people's brothers and sisters and wives and, and people that were around Seattle at the time. And so um, wrote this out. I'm only about, I, I didn't get quite through with it yet, but um, I basically got up to the point where they got big. So I got a little bit of that background. But, um, but essentially they, um, for all intents and purposes, you know, Jerry moved around a good bit. His father was in the military. And so we'll talk about Rooster a little bit later. That was a, based on a true story. Um, about his father being in the military. So he moved around a little bit. He actually spent some time in Texas. He was friends with Dimebag Daryl and some of the folks from Pantera, which I didn't realize until I read this book. But um, And uh, so the, the precursor to Alice in Chains, they went around a few things, but uh, a, a few times with some different names. But Diamond Lie was the one that would hit right before they changed their name back to Alice in Chains. And I say back to Alice in Chains in 80, I'm going to mess this one up, 84, 5, 6, something like that, right before they uh, they really started recording, um, they were called Alice in Chains, and it was like kind of like Guns N' Roses. Oh, that's right, because it was about 87. So at the same time, they independently came up with that. They didn't know that Guns N' Roses was a thing. They came up with Alice in Chains, and, uh, and then ended up dropping that. They went with Diamond Life for a little bit, and right as they were getting signed, they changed that N with an apostrophe to I-N, because uh, they didn't want to seem like a you know like a follow on to Guns N' Roses. Yeah, they you know you can go look and um, there's some pictures out there floating around. They were not the prototypical Seattle band at that time. They mm. probably, if you had to pinpoint them as something, they were probably more almost glam. And um, yeah, they started out and they'd been around and they were playing in the Seattle circuit and. Cantrell uh, always talks about how they kind of used to catch a lot of crap from people because they would open for anybody. So, like, you'd have a band coming through town, like Poison. We don't have anybody to open for us. And they would open for them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's kind of how they got their name out there. And, uh, yeah, they, they definitely they tweaked, their, they tweaked their sound. Yeah, and so this was like a really funny time for bands in Seattle because they hadn't found a voice yet. Grunge wasn't a word, you know, at least not in this in the sense that it was being applied to music. And it may be. I mean, I'm sure some kind of music historian could call me out on that. But for the most part, if you look at the bands that came out, I mean, Alice in Chains was one of the big four that came out of Seattle. You had Nirvana, you had Soundgarden, you had uh, Pearl Jam, and then Alice in Chains, right? You call those the big four that came out of Seattle. Um, Sub Pop was the record label that picked up Nirvana, and I forget if I don't I don't remember if. Sub Pop picked up any of the others on that one. But anyway, uh, so that was a weird time. You know, like for them to open for Poison, I get, I totally get it. They didn't even know who they were at the time. And if you look back some of the early photos, they looked a little kind of glamish just because everybody was kind of teasing into that. Even when Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses came down from Seattle to join what would become Guns N' Roses, 
he looked kind of like a mixture between punk and glam, you know, because he had that the punk roots, but then he had, you know, he had dyed his hair kind of blue and spiky, he wore this long trench coat, and it just, I mean, he just kind of looked like he was from another planet when he got to L.A., so uh, Seattle just didn't know what was going on, and so I think that's an important point that you made, like, they would open for anybody because they weren't anything yet, you know, they were developing that sound, which also is a testament to how unique they were, you know. And I also think, comparing them to some of those other bands, you don't know how genuine Kurt Cobain and those people were about like not wanting to be a rock star. Mm-hmm. Like, is that just you know uh, um, something they said to give them street cred or whatever? And my whole argument that is, if you didn't want to be a rock star, don't sign with Geffen. Right. Uh, you know, don't make music videos. But anyway, I think Alice in Chains of of those four, they were like, we want to be big. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they made any bones about that. And I think that lost them initially some credibility with the other bands in Seattle at the time. I've, uh, on one of our earlier podcasts, we did, I think it was the title of the podcast was Did Grunge Really Kill Glam? And there's a book, and I've completely, the name escapes me now, but they were kind of almost looked down upon mm-hmm. by the other the other Seattle bands. It's not being genuine and authentic and uh, you know, so I, I feel like they have proven everybody wrong. Cause they've had uh, just immense staying power and, mm-hmm. and have been able to uh, not change their sound, but change it enough to where they're still putting out quality records that they're, you know, they're longtime fans like and, you know, some of the newer fans. But yeah, getting back to what you were talking about in Seattle, they were just were kind of the. They were kind of the odd guy, odd guy out there, mm-hmm. as far as like the quote unquote cool circle. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I, <coughs> I feel like a good many of the bands. Um, I, I feel like that's a common thread amongst musicians, you know. And um, and I don't think that they they're reading each other's playbooks there, you know. Like Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, right? I had to throw in a Pink Floyd reference. Um, he he even made the comment like, I mean, he was against like what capitalism was and big money and all that kind of stuff. He wrote about it in the song Money, which was a, like. It was um, totally odd that he wrote about that in Money, and what song got him more popularity than anything before that? Money, right? And so he he kind of tongue-in-cheek said later, like, yeah, I had to become a capitalist once I had a lot of money and I had to figure out what to do with it. I had to decide, well, do I want to keep this money? And, you know, those sorts of things. I mean, I feel like it's it's part of the playbook. Like, well, boo-hoo, cry into your bag of money at night about not wanting to become big. But same thing happened. You watch the Pearl Jam 20 documentary, when Eddie Vedder, when they played, I forgot what festival that was. It's where he hopped onto the um, he hopped onto the camera operators thing and was going to dive into the car. He at least was swinging over the crowd or whatever. After that show, he kind of sat down and like he just looked like he was like losing his head a little bit. And he I, later he said it like he he knew it was over at that point. They were playing these huge shows and it was just it was a force that wouldn't be stopped. So it was like in one sense they're fighting it, but in the other sense, like what do you do? How do you fight the fame? How do you claw it back? You know, and you can't. And so, I, to some extent, I can I agree that it's probably a genuine. Yeah, I'm not gonna. You know, we got popular because we were anti-establishment. But to get out there, you kind of have to become establishment. You know, to me, Joe Bonamassa is the the um, penultimate um, musician to represent anti-establishment, but still establishment because he owns his own stuff. He's got J&R Adventures for his records, uh, for his you know productions and all that kind of stuff. And so he's kind of shown that you can be a musician without having to just sign up for any any old thing, and he's done it his own way. But anyway, I, that's a digression. Uh, but yeah, I feel like um, 
once uh once they started to find their voice, they were the first ones really to take off uh, there. And it was um it was only it was 1990 when they got to when they recorded Facelift. But between the 87 and 90 phase, do you have anything from that from that era that you wanted to add? No, uh, uh-uh, no, um, just that you know, Facelift was their their first thing to come out and that uh you know it sold two million albums mm-hmm. and so two million albums at a time when if you played them on mtv they would have stuck out a little bit like a sore thumb at that time because mm-hmm. they weren't poison they weren't you know van halen uh, they even i even have notes here they opened for extreme hmm. so that's that's an odd pairing but especially that uh, man in the box video uh, you yeah. know, that was nothing like um, any of the vid- other videos that you saw you know, it wasn't like on a sound stage with all the lights and everything like Poison and Bon Jovi used to do so mm-hmm. yeah that, that 87 and 90 period I, I don't really have a whole lot on that just that um, you know they recorded face uh, uh, facelift and that's kind of yeah, their jumping off point at least nationally. Yeah, so one thing we'll come back to later is the only thing I can add to this is um, they really met at a place called the Music Bank in Seattle, and that happened right around that eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight kind of period. And what the Music Bank was in Seattle, it's a big city, right? And you've actually got a like a hotbed of musicianship there. And but it's a big city. Where do you practice? You know, I mean, here in the South, we used to go to my drummer's house, and his his folks had a big basement. And we just all drug our crap over there. We could park right in front of the house and drag our stuff in. Think about trying to do it in a big city. And that's something I never thought about until I started reading this biography. And um, anyway, so they found um, I say they, so I forget who it was, but somebody found this warehouse, forty thousand square foot warehouse, and they turned it into something called the Music Bank. And you'll see um, later that they released a box set of three CDs called Music Bank. I didn't I didn't make that connection until I read that biography. But what they did was they made 50 or 60 some odd rehearsal rooms that bands would pay to rent the same way you rent an apartment. And so um, Lane actually lived there for a little while, and so did Jerry, because uh, both of his folks died relatively young. Uh, when he was relatively young, I'm sorry. Well, I guess both of them were. But anyway, um, and so that's that's where they had, um, it was just a hotbed of creative activity there at the Music Bank, and that's really, I would say that's where they got their start because that's where it all came together. So that's the only thing I can add before before facelift, and given that, we were going to walk through the, the discography just a little bit and give some little highlights and then get to our top ten. So since we're already at facelift, and I don't want to tease into my top ten too much, but number one on my top ten, only in chronological order, is Man in the Box. <coughs> And so, and like you said, like I was trying to think back, when do I remember coming in contact with Alice in Chains? Like, what was it? And I think the answer was Man in the Box video. Like, there's just something, there's a line in there that's, that's something to the effect of eyes sewn shut. And they had that guy whose eyes, I mean, it's prosthetics, of course, but I mean, had the guy in the video's eyes shown. I mean, that's hard to get out of your head. You know, I can still remember that image, however, and I've, I haven't seen that video in probably 30 years. And so, um, but the iconic talk box and wah pedal that, that Jerry Cantrell used to create that, um, the sound for that, I was actually about to mimic it, but I'm, I'm going to try to be more mature than that. <laughs> I might later uh, when I get to that. But um, such an iconic song. And to me, the highlight of that whole album, of course, it was released, I think it was released as a single, but it was certainly the number one off that album. To me, that album, you could almost forget about most of the rest of it, but maybe we can get into the, the t- some of the top 10 on that one. Yeah, I don't even have a song from that on my top ten. Yeah, 
Um, I mean, if you don't like Man in the Box, then I don't think you like anything else on there, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there were songs like Bleed the Freak and Sea of Sorrow um, th- that were on there. But toward the back end, that album, it gets, I think, the production value suffers. And uh, I just don't think they had found their voice yet. Yeah. I mean, to me, and that, that's my takeaway. Like, because when you listen to Dirt, which is the next album, 1992, that one was one complete statement, you know? When you listen to Facelift, to me, it was like a very strong start, very weak finish. And, you know, and I don't, again, I mean, to be your first album, I mean, I'm, I'm here criticizing some band who's got, you know, I mean, I've got a handful of albums right now, eight in my hand. Yeah, they sell 30 million. Yeah, so I mean, it's like, it's hard for me to, to, to criticize them, but just as a, as a musical lover and an observer, they just, it just didn't pick up that last half of the album. And so if I was uh, back in the vinyl days, I would I would have stuck it on side one and been done, you know, with that one as far as that goes. You'd think that they would have sprinkled them out a little bit better, uh, but maybe maybe they just didn't have the visibility over the music at that point. So, but next album, and to me, you know, a while back, I hate this stuff on Facebook. I mean, I, do, I really don't like social media, but every once in a while I just have to gravitate towards it because people are on it. And, uh, and things happen there. And a lot of bands, they don't even have their own websites anymore. So I have to stay on Facebook just to understand when they're going to play somewhere. Uh, especially, you know, if you're supporting independent artists and things like that. They're just not going to have their own stuff. And they're not going to have their own newsletters and all. And so anyway, I was on Facebook and somebody did one of those, like, you know, post your top ten, whatever. Um, I usually ignore those things with a passion. But somebody asked, I mean, this is probably last year. Uh, to post my top 10 albums of all time with the cover, and then you have to nominate somebody else. That was else. me. It, was that you I that gave it? it? Oh, I, I think awesome. it was. So, uh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that was, uh, Dirt made that made that list for me. And, I mean, we're talking top 10 of all time for me, and I, I spent some serious time thinking about that. And uh, I don't remember what order it was, and I don't think I did it like number one, number two, because I, I, it's difficult for me to say what's my number one, other than probably Pulse by Pink Floyd. But, um... Anyway, that one made the list. That album is solid front to back. I'm not saying there's not a bad song on there, but it's, the whole thing is listenable in my view. I completely agree with you on that. If I, if I were ranking my favorite albums of all time, I think this probably comes in at number two for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when it came out, um, I didn't pay any attention to it. Uh, and it, it was... After it came out, uh, I remember this specifically. Uh, Michael Ray, if you're listening to this, you may remember this. So he, he's Michael's one of my best friends growing up, and uh, I can't remember if it's my sophomore or junior year. Anyways, during the summer, and he and I had gone to like a music festival or something, and we were driving back at like one in the morning, and there was a movie that had come out called The Last Action Hero, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, mm-hmm. and had this phenomenal lineup at the time. It was like Def Leppard. Uh, Tesla, ACDC, and Alice in Chains had two songs on there. What the hell have I and A Little Bitter. And, <clears throat> of course, you know, I had heard Man in the Box and I think probably Sea of Sorrow. But other than that, I, you know, didn't really think that much of them. And it got to the song, Where the Hell Have I? What the Hell Have I? And it blew me away. kind of has almost like a Middle Eastern sitar at the beginning and then... Just the overriding crunch of uh, uh, Cantrell's guitar during the course, and it just instantly hooked me. And so uh, this was, you know, a little after Dirt came out, and I remember going and picking picking up the Dirt CD, 
and I can you know, a time when you had like a six disc changer. It was probably two years before it got out of my rotation. <laughs> uh, it's as dark of an album as you're almost ever going to hear. Um, it, it's, uh, it's basically like a, a love letter and then a breakup to heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have this quote from um, um, uh, Staley. It says here, uh, it, it says, uh, I was dealing with a kind of personal anguish and turmoil, which turns into drugs to ease that pain, and being confident that was the answer in a way. Then later on, the songs start to slip down closer and closer to hell. And it, it, he's, he's tearing a narrative, but it's about himself. And he says, and, um, and then he figures out that drugs were not and are not the way to ease the pain. Basically, the whole story of the last three years of my life. Yeah, um, that's powerful. It's powerful, and we'll find out later that he, you know, he lost that. But um, you can kind of divide Allison Chains into to Laney's period, and then also William's period after that. So we'll we'll get into that as we keep going through. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a sad thing, and 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 there's a lot of bands out of Seattle that were lost to heroin. Well, and, and it, uh, there were numerous people in the band, you know, this was Mike Starr's last album. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would go on to die the same way Lane did. And you have to think at the time, if Mike asked to leave Alice in Chains for his drug habit, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I don't know if, did you ever watch, um, Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew by chance? Uh, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Did you see the Mike Starr season? No. Uh, all right, it's really, really powerful stuff. So um, he was the last person to see Lane alive. And he was there with him when he shot up that, you know, the the, the final, the final oh, time really? he shot up. I didn't up. know that. And apparently Lane was in bad shape, and uh, Mike wanted to call the police or an ambulance or whatever, and Lane wouldn't let him. And so Mike left. And that's just haunted him, wow. you know, for all these years. And so Dr. Drew brought in... Lane's mom and it was just really really powerful and she was like uh you know she said Mike his death is not your fault you know his death is it's his fault right he was the one that took that path you know and 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 couldn't you know get out of it and it was just like you saw like 15 years of hell just leave his body and I mean he's sobbing just wow uncontrollably uh, you know, and, and he would obviously relapse a couple of years later and uh, and die. But the the album to me, it's I don't listen to it a whole lot anymore, honestly, because it's depressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's depressing knowing what happened uh, yeah. to him and to Mike. But uh, just look at the lyrics of the song "Dirt." You know, I yeah. want my brain scattered. You know, on the wall. I mean, that's that's you know that's so dark. But yeah, it's a it's. To me, though, it's a very diverse-sounding album. There are songs on there that are just... You could see being played in an arena and everybody, you know, fist in the air. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, these kind of just really sludgy moments, which is kind of what Jerry Cantrell came to be right. to be known for. But what was your first, like... When, when did you first, like, hear the album? What was the first song, put it that way, you heard I mean, off the album? God, it was probably Rooster. I probably came in contact with this album... Through Unplugged, which is probably a weird way to do it, but I just don't, as I'm looking through these, like, I don't even know if they made videos for any of these songs, because that was, like, the main throughput for me uh, in, in, what was this, 92? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I was, uh, I was, you know, I was early teens at that point, uh, or just barely about to be a teenager at that point, 
And um, and so like yeah, MTV was where you got stuff that uh, in that time. I don't remember, however, getting into this album until I heard MTV Unplugged, which was actually four years later, '96. And when I heard it was probably Rooster. It might have been down in a hole, but it was probably Rooster, and uh, that got me into this album. But I mean, just looking at this album, I actually I need to go now that I know the history of this. I didn't I I wasn't aware of all that that you just said. Uh, I need to go back and kind of like listen to the lyrics and really pay attention to this one because I haven't really treated it that way. As much as I've listened to this album, I don't even think I could I can sing some of the choruses for some of these, of course, but I'm not I'm not even sure I ever connected it. Uh, but I mean, just to 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 talk about how profound this album is and how um this is where you go to you go see Allison Chains now live, which I've seen them a couple of times live. Them Bones, Damn That River, uh, Down in a Hole, Rooster. Uh, let's see, Angry Chair, Wood, those show up in the set list a lot. It's, it's, it's amazing how much this album really catapulted them to a different place. Um, so anyway, but yeah, that was probably the first one, probably down in a hole or rooster, but really that whole MTV Unplugged, it kind of reminded me like, oh yeah, this was that band that did Man in the Box and they, now they can do this too? That's kind of cool, you know? Well, and to add to some of the darkness to it, um, they recorded it in L.A., and it was during the uh, L.A. riots. And mm-hmm. I guess wherever they were recording was in close proximity. And uh, uh, I read an interview where Cantrell said, you know, he was in a, I guess he was in a liquor store or a beer store, and people came in and just started beating people. Um, and wow. so, you know, that you, ha- you had that, and, you know, that was a heavy time in our country when all that was going on. And so they're there recording that, but... Um, I do have a couple of tidbits, I think, on, on a few of the songs. Um, Down in a Hole was written about one of Cantrell's girlfriends. And uh, he said that this is one of his three best songs. And um, to me, this was an, a, a song that was really recorded and mastered well. It's got all of these layers. It's got the haunting harmonies uh, that Cantrell can play on guitar and mm-hmm. vocally. Uh, fantastic version out there covered by uh, Ryan Adams that's uh, that's really really good but that was the song that hooked me in on this album you know for a lot of people it was wood because that was on the single soundtrack which mm-hmm. kind of helped to break the oh uh, yeah I forgot about they were, they know, were part of that had to break the uh, the um, that scene to, to the rest of the nation and it was about Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone mm-hmm who uh, who died right as their debut album was going to come out? Had they not, had he not died, there would be no Pearl Jam. Right. Yeah. You know? One of the things that sets them apart, though, is they didn't have kind of the incestuous relationship that a lot of the other bands did because they never really broke up. Um, you know, you had Green River mm-hmm. and Mother Love Bone, and they were kind of had members in different bands, even Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, you know, was in other bands. And so they kind of always stayed to themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even when Mike Starr left, they got Mike Ines from the Aussie band. They didn't go to, you know, necessarily another Seattle band. So I think that's kind of always set them apart because they didn't, they weren't in those other bands. And uh, Hmm. I think that you wonder if that played a role kind of in how some of those other musicians viewed them very early on. You know, that's interesting. I've never thought about that, but of the big four, Nirvana did their own thing. There was no intermingling there. And then uh, Alice in Chains did their own thing. There was no intermingling there. But yeah, you try to even talk about Pearl Jam and even Soundgarden, you can't, they're all just one family. 
You know, people were right. living with other people, and I mean, Chris right. Cornell showed up on the Mother Love on uh, Temple of the Dog, Mother Love Bone, and so did Eddie Vedder. Like it was just this we. I mean, you just cannot talk about one without the other, and you also can see like the tremendous talent that was just around. You know, but yeah, I've never thought about that. That I mean, they truly were unique. You know, and I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that Pearl Jam is like Soundgarden or Soundgarden's like Nirvana. They were all really unique, but to me, there is something different about Alice in Chains, you know? Nobody was harmonizing like they were. Nobody was sludgy like they were. Nobody was so sludgy that they... or Nobody was sludgy, but they still sounded like there was a melody, you know? There was just... They were something different, you know? One of those backing vocals by Contrell, I often tell people, uh, I think his backing vocals were a fifth member Mm -hmm. of the band, a lot of people like to say that Van Halen's not Van Halen without Sammy Hagar because of his backing vocals. I can make that argument just as strong for Jerry Cantrell's backing vocals uh, on yeah. Alice in Chains. And it's almost like his his voice and his guitar playing at times just meld into one. You're trying to get me to, to sing Man of the Box, aren't you? Like, <laughs> wow, wow. But uh, yeah, so uh, you know, he just added so much to it. And, and this album just, for me was just so good. And yeah. they got that coveted spot on one of those early Lollapalooza tours. Uh, have some friends that saw them on that and just said, talked about how amazing it was. But I think it was kind of one of the last big tours they would ever tour with Lane. Mm, okay. So, you know, here you have this album that is so good and means so much to so many people. And really, they peaked with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because of personal demons, and I think there were other members of the band that had some issue, you know, significant issues. But of course, you know, Lane's drug dependency is legendary, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, so they, you know, they they took on the world, and I always think it's funny um, they were with Columbia Records, and so uh, before this, um, Warrant had released the Cherry Pie album, mm-hmm. which went to like number one, you know, and the song Cherry Pie was everywhere, and. They were just the darlings of Columbia. We know everything just changed overnight. So Warren was getting ready to release their Dog Eat Dog album. And uh, at Columbia, when you walk in, they had this massive picture of Warren. Mm-hmm. And so he goes in when they're getting ready to release the Dog Eat Dog album, and they were replaced by Alice in Chains. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. He, it, I knew about the... Apparently, that had a profound effect on him. Oh, wow. And uh, it just changed overnight. you know. And they, like you said, they wanted to be big. Yeah. And here they have what they want, and they can't hold on to it to, to some degree. Yeah. So I actually knew what you were going to say. I didn't know the Allison Chains part, but when you were talking about Columbia and the big picture, Janie Lane talked about that before he passed um, as being like like one of those moments just like, how do you get away from this, you know? Or how do you top it? I mean, one. I mean, either either one is a prison you don't necessarily want to be in. But he said, yeah, when you walk into the record executive's office or whatever, or the boardroom or wherever that picture was, he said, you see this huge album cover. And I mean, they were sick of Cherry Pie at that point, you know? But you just see that huge album cover, and it's clearly that's that was Top Dog at the, at the time. But, um, so like, yeah, to me, totally agree. Um, Dirt was... I, I love Dirt. I mean, I don't know if they'll ever top that in my mind. Um, but to me, they did. I, they didn't top it, but to continue, uh, the next thing they released in 1994 was the double... I, was it released as a double EP, Jar of Flies and Sap? No, it's just an EP. It was Sorry, just, Sap, I believe, was recorded 
after facelift, okay. between facelift and dirt. Got it. Okay. Um, and we can talk about that for a second if you want to. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people hold it in really, really high regard. Um, I got it. You know, after they got big, they re-released. I think the initial release was just a few copies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it became really a big, highly bootlegged item. But uh, it's definitely different, mm-hmm. um, you know, from a standpoint of it's all acoustic and, yeah. uh, you know, some really cool vocal arrangements on there. But it's not one, honestly, that I sit around and listen to. No. Now, Jar of Flies, I can listen to that one front. Other than Iron Gland, like this is what kind of irritates me a little bit about Allison Chains. Um, they have never done this in concert, but I went to go see Velvet Revolver. Um, and they just act silly sometimes, and it just kind of irritates. Like, I didn't like Fish for the longest time because, to me, they were making not a mockery of music, but I'm just like, I'm serious about this, you know? And it's okay for you to have a good time, but don't mess up a song just to be stupid and funny. Yeah, I've heard heard them say that they're embarrassed about Iron Clan. It's embarrassing. That is the sore thumb of that entire, uh, of that that album. The rest of the album, it is, to me, a complete statement the same way that Dirt was. I can put that on and listen to it in the background over and over and over again. Um, there's just, uh, again, the only bad song is Iron Glen. Everything else just fits together really, really well. Well, yeah, so that, that it's interesting that EP, they had, you know, done Lollapalooza and had toured, and they all went their separate ways, and, you know, <clears throat> Bad Habits, mm-hmm. you know, really took hold. and So basically they got back together um, just to see what would happen. And uh, a lot of these songs were kind of, from what I heard, were somewhat started on the back of a tour bus, mm-hmm. just when you know they had time to kill. And so they go in not really wanting to make an album or anything; they just kind of want to get in and play. But they wound up um, recording, uh, recording it in a week. And some days they were putting in eighteen hours. And so I remember when this came out <clears throat> uh, very vividly. No excuses. And I was like, wow, they have like completely changed as a band. And I remember I, <laughs> I remember I bought this in a Walmart. And I, for whatever reason, I can remember I was with my mom. And uh, as I would always do in those days, I would commandeer the CD player in the car. <laughs> and I put this in expecting it to be this, this you know, rocking follow-up to Dirt. And I was like, oh, this is different. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it took me a while to appreciate its greatness. But it... It's fantastic. It's a fantastic statement. Um, except for uh, oh, what's the last song on there? It's um, uh, let's see, swing on this. Yeah, that's one mm-hmm. of those ones. They man, what were they thinking? Uh, yeah, with that. But it was the first EP in history to debut at number one, and gave them two of their more famous videos. And uh, no excuses is just an amazing song. I love the the drum the drum feels that uh, Sean Kenny is playing on that. And, um, boy, talking about making a, a statement and just going in to put something together to, to play, and it debuts at number one. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, i got to make a correction here. So Iron Gland was on Dirt. Dirt yeah. yeah, my bad. And so the one I was thinking of, as soon as you said that, I thought, okay, I said something wrong. It's Swing on This that just did not fit the album uh, Jar of Flies. Iron Gland was on Dirt. Yeah, my bad. And that's kind of a homage to Iron Man. Yeah, of course, right. <laughs> So, um, but anyway, so yeah, I, um, I, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of SAP like you. I mean, I don't even, in fact, I mean, 
I don't clearly I don't own it because I just looked through all my CDs and I don't have it. And the reason why I thought it was released as like a double EP because it was it was released in '94 at least officially, and you've got two EPs that were released that year. And if you go to try to buy it now, especially with the vinyl, they package them together. Why? Well, right. because who wants to buy an EP vinyl? Right. You know. So um, but anyway, uh, to me that was a solid release, and it actually kind of teases into being acoustic songs. It teases into MTV Unplugged, which comes right after their self-titled album, Alice in Chains, which was released in 1995. Also known as the Tripod the Album. The Tripod Album. So this is the one um, This is the one that it used to come... So mine, if you're looking at it now, it's just a black and white album. But it came in like... Mine's like, green. So it had, see, they had like a yellow-green cellophane yeah. thing over it, and it actually reminds me of the release that they did with Devil Put Dinosaur here, um, which is sort of a red... It's kind of like a... Like if you had 3D uh, uh, glasses, the one's red and one's blue, it kind of looks like that kind of red color. Right. And if you take the sleeve out, it it is a 3D thing. <coughs> so anyway, for this one, I don't know if they just had different versions of it or what, but mine came wrapped in that yellow, greenish cellophane stuff. Uh, but it's just kind of a black and white album. But it's called Tripod because it's got a picture of a dog that's missing a... Uh, missing a leg, and in true Allison Chains fashion, it makes you feel just a little bit uncomfortable. And but you also, it's kind of endearing at the same time. You want to like the dog, but um, anyway, this was uh, to me, uh, this was a a decent follow up to to the release of Jars of uh, of Flies, and oh, I guess you could also say the release of Dirt, Jars of Flies, and into this one because I mean, some of my favorite songs come off of this as well. I don't know if they made, yeah, one of them made my list. But Grind, Sludge Factory, Heaven Beside You, I mean, some of those, I, I could listen to those over and over and over again. This is one of the most anticipated albums for me ever in my life. Really? Yeah. Uh, and it let me down. Uh, to me, the album is very top-heavy. Um, there's, not, there's not a lot of in-between material for me. Mm -hmm. uh, the songs that you mentioned... I really like, I like the song again. Uh, I like over now, but after that, it just was, it was just too disjointed. And at times it's just, it's very psychedelic mm -hmm. and, and, and very out there. And for me, uh, it fell out of favor f fairly quickly other than those, the songs that I mentioned. Yeah. You know, I didn't, um, when you say highly anticipated, I didn't. I, I still don't think I was with Alice in Chains at this point. I'm fairly confident I picked up all these after MTV Unplugged. So to me, I didn't anticipate anything with it. And quite frankly, my first several years of, of listening to Alice in Chains, I don't think I could have distinguished between the albums. Tori, I, I just knew where to go for the hits that I liked, or what I would call hits. But um, so yeah, I didn't anticipate this one. But I, I feel the same way you do in terms of, um, you know it's not to me it's not what facelift was so facelift was very top heavy in the sense of like i mentioned there's a few songs at the beginning and then the rest of it just falls apart this one they at least sprinkled throughout you know you've got frogs which made the unplugged version as well um over now which is a great great song um but uh but yeah to me they kind of sprinkled them in it's definitely above facelift for me but definitely below uh dirt so Anything else about this one? Nah, I don't really have anything else to so add. So let's move on to MTV Unplugged, because this is really, you know, I don't know the timing on this, but, you know, Pearl Jam had done it, um, or at least was going to do it. Again, I don't, know, I don't know which one happened first, but what I'm getting at is Nirvana did it. Like, this is weird. You know, this is grunge. I don't know if Soundgarden ever did it. 
I don't remember. I don't remember Soundgarden doing it. I mean, you know, the Nirvana one is one of the more iconic ones. God, it is, yeah. Um, that's, you know, that, still played today. Yeah, that sweater that he wore, uh, the little kind of cardigan thing, that was in the Seattle um, Music Experience Museum. Uh, that's not called that anymore, but um, if you've ever been to Seattle, you've got to go, and you're a music fan, you've got to go to that museum. They've... Um, it's it's like the Museum of Pop Culture or something. It used to be called the Seattle Music Experiment or Museum or something like that because you could go in there and play instruments. But they realized that their real audience was like we've got a bunch of stuff in Seattle to you know to bring people together and that people love. It's like Pearl Jam, they got an entire Pearl Jam exhibit. Got all of Eddie's notebooks that he wrote all the songs in. Um, they've got um, the big lettering from one of the Pearl Jam videos, that huge, um, I can't remember which which one that was. But anyway, it's it's there, you know, from, from it may have been on their stage show as well. But um, anyway, there's a Nirvana room as well, as you might imagine, because they were they were iconic from that area. And so the, the sweater that he wore was there. And, you know, that guitar that he played, his daughter ends up giving to her boyfriend uh, for as a present, right? And then... I mean, lo and behold, they broke up, and he wouldn't give it back because she gave it to him. Can you imagine what? I mean, the the guitar's a piece of garbage. I mean, you know, it's it's just a crap. I mean, he he only played bad equipment, (laughs) you know. But we um, bragged about the fact he wasn't a good guitar player. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, but that's that. The little side note there that that's a great museum to go to if you're a fan of music and a fan of in general things that came out of Seattle. But um, anyway, MTV Unplugged, man, this was, um, man, I remember this. I just remember it. I remember the way that Lane looked when he sings certain songs. He had these sunglasses on. His hair was kind of short and kind Purple. of purpley, kind of blind or whatever. He had the fingerless gloves on. Mm-hmm. And so it was, um, and I just remember the way he would kind of rock back and forth as he was singing, like, had again, had the sunglasses on. Almost like he didn't want to be there, maybe. I don't know. Or he was socially awkward or something. I'm not sure. But I just, I adore this album, and this is where we, of course, started off this podcast, which was, this is the one that we listened to. Now, I didn't know at the time that it was well-regarded in terms of the audiophile world, or at least in recording world, but it is certainly a piece of work, you know? I really like it, and I remember watching it when it came on, and the way they started the show was kind of cool. You had uh, different members of the band come out and start playing, uh, and you know, um, and I remember when Lane came out, I was like, this isn't good. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was gaunt, yeah. uh, pale, um, just, you, you could tell like his pants were too big for him. And, um, I think they really, really struggled to get the performance out of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was numerous times and we even, when we talked with Toby about this, you know, they had to, it took them over three. I have it written down somewhere, like three or four hours to record that because they had to start and stop several songs. He, you know, Lane was having trouble with the lyrics. A uh, little known fact, Jerry Cantrell had food poisoning mm. during that. Uh, so he, he wasn't feeling uh, up to snuff. And, of course, Metallica were in the audience. Yeah. And this is when Lode had come out and they cut all their hair and Mike Inez on his face, like, don't <laughs> let friends get friends' haircuts or something <laughs> like that, which is kind of messing with them. But, yeah. Um, it's kind of the last, the last thing we have from Lane that's significant. There was a couple of songs on like one of the box sets or whatever, but they're just, to me they're throwaway tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was kind of his goodbye. Yeah, um, and you know it's just like I said, it's kind of like with Dirt. It's it's hard at times uh, 
to watch some of that and, and listen to it, just knowing the road that would lie ahead for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, by all accounts, he was just a super sweet guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, the song selection I thought was interesting on it. And you talked about the song over now mm-hmm. off the tripod album. I actually prefer the over now on unplugged versus that on the tripod. album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I really like that, but, um, it was just an amazing, amazing album. And, <clears throat> I think it probably took MTV by surprise how popular it was because mm-hmm. it sold a ton of copies. Yeah, uh, they've made a lot. A lot of people have made money off that. And the you know almost everybody has the DVD. You know how many people like I go I come over here. You've got it. I've got it. Uh, you, I go over to people's houses that are music fans, and they all have that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, was, it was what the last big artistic statement from him, and um, it was kind of fitting to go out in a little bit of a subdued a sub- subdued manner, but you really can appreciate the songwriting yeah. of Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley on, on that album. It's very intricate. Um, the melodies uh, are just beautiful on it. And um, like I said, it had to have taken MTV by surprise as to yeah. how big it became. I mean, and that's it, to me, it's a testament to songwriting. And there's, there's, some, there's some flaws in this logic, but I'll go ahead and say it. It's a testament to songwriting when you can transfer a guitar-heavy song and like a, I mean, distortion-heavy song and transfer it to acoustic, and you're like, wow, that is beautiful. You know, I mean, there was something deeper there that maybe I didn't even recognize was there. Um, and you've clearly got some that you couldn't translate over very effectively, like Man in the Box. I mean, that's so effects-heavy, it would be yeah, nothing no without it. That, yeah. But if you think about um, the songs that they were able to translate over, now, down on the whole, that was one I was, you know, I was just playing it earlier on acoustic guitar. That's one that you could have written on acoustic or electric. It sounds equally good. It actually may have been acoustic on the original. I don't remember. But, um, but yeah, to me, um, I thought that was very well said by you. Like, yeah, it, it was a great outgoing moment, even though we didn't lose Lane for another six years. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, um, if they were, uh, because we had a live album that came out by, from them, uh, just called Alice in Chains Live in 2000, and but we didn't really hear anything, they may have been touring around or something, but like grunge had kind of crested really quickly, you know, when Nirvana came onto the scene, if you weren't aware of grunge before that, in 1992, would never mind, I believe, when they came onto the scene with that video, Smells Like Teen Spirit, I remember I remember where I was. I mean, that was just like 9-11 for me. I can tell you exactly where I was. I was in Dave McCaffrey's class. It was 9 o'clock, <laughs> and it was a Tuesday. I mean, I can tell you, and he's the one that came on stage and told us Joe Benarens was doing a guest lecture. I mean, I can tell you every piece um, about that. <laughs> quick quick side note. So Kyle and I went to pharmacy school together, and uh, I remember that day even a little more vivid than that. I was sitting at the back of the classroom. Yeah. We had, were in a statistics class the beforehand. Back left. <laughs> back left of the classroom. Dr. McCaffrey came, slipped in about 10 minutes before um, the statistics class was o- over, and I had my computer up, and this was right about the time when everybody had laptops in, in school or whatever, and he said, pull, I think he said, pull it up to abc.com and don't close it out. And I go, why? He goes, America's under attack. Wow. And then... You know, he went on to teach that class. So interesting little, uh, that's, has, yeah. that has stuck with me ever since then. But yeah, I, I'm the same way you about Nirvana. I was, I was riding, I was in Mobile, Alabama with my uncle mm-hmm. and I heard it. And my cousin was like, yeah, have you heard this song? It's going to, it's like the biggest thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like my, my dad can tell you 
where he was when he heard the Rolling Stones the first time, he can tell you what flight of stairs he was on in, in his dorm room. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's, that's just, wild. yeah, Nirvana. And I, I remember exactly where I was the day they found out Kurt Cobain had killed himself. See, I don't remember that one. I do remember I was at baseball practice at Mitch Marshall's house. He had a batting, kind of like a batting cage in his backyard for some strange reason. And we were over there, and for whatever reason, baseball practice stopped. And they said, oh, my God, you've got to come inside and watch this on TV. And this was weird because we never went inside his house. We, we just went there to, to use his baseball, like right. the, the batting cage thing. Um, and so, anyway, every – I mean, it was over with at that point. We did not go – I don't remember if we even went back out and started playing again. And as I was watching it, I thought – I'm looking around thinking, like, why is everybody going nuts over this? I just didn't get it. It was okay, but it was like – it wasn't – to me, it was an earworm. I didn't realize it was going to take over. But at that moment, it's just like all the all the '80s music that I love died. You know, it's like you didn't see any more. You didn't see any more of the things that were in the late '80s that I saw. Um, well, well, going you know. back to your point about the timing of Unplugged, and that was at a time when grunge music had started to cannibalize itself, just as glam did. You had the Me Too people coming out, not as in the Me Too movement, but uh, mm-hmm. Me Too, and I'm going to sound. You know, you had. A Seven Mary Three, uh, bands like that coming out that were just a blatant ripoff yeah, yeah. of of these uh, you know Candlebox uh, yeah, to some extent. I mean, it's, it's a formula. Yeah, and so at that point, um, you know, at that point, Pearl Jam changed. They had to find themselves. Uh, you know, they put out the um, No Code album, which is nothing like. 10 or whatever mm-hmm. and so i feel Pearl like jam hasn't been pearl jam after 10 for me i <laughs> uh, see I, I i i'm not a 10 fan oh, i love I'm 10 man the weirdo here but uh you know that they alice and change was kind of in this weird kind of this weird area where they weren't grungy grunge mm-hmm. but they weren't you know they weren't new metal right kind of where do you where do you put them in and you know they've released this mellow acoustic EP that went number one and they put out this kind of psychedelic tripod album and they got they opened for Kiss and that's the last show I think they ever played was in Kansas City opening for Kiss if, mm-hmm. I, if I'm wrong somebody text me I mean, or send me a message on that but yeah so here they are huge band and now they're opening for Kiss on like the um, the reunion tour mm-hmm. or whatever for a while but uh, which is kind of odd mm-hmm. um, that they uh, did. That. Interesting enough, that's what broke. Supposedly, it's what broke Skid Row up. Uh, Sebastian Bach booked Skid Row to open for Kiss um, and didn't tell the other band members. And oh wow, uh, yeah, Eddie Trunk has told the story that he was at Dave Sabo's house when Sabo got the phone call that Sebastian had done that, and they didn't want to do that. And they ultimately they didn't. Now a couple of years later. They would open for Kiss with Johnny Solinger. You and I both saw one of those shows. But yeah. yeah. So going back to 96, uh, weird time for the band. And his health was just spiraling out of control. And, you know, unfortunately, the the writing was on the wall. What's going to happen six years later? Honestly, it's based on his appearance. And you and I both have a medical background. Based on his appearance at Unplugged, the fact that he made it six years is surprising. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have been surprised uh, if, if the next week, oh, yeah, he recorded this, they recorded MTV Unplugged, and that was the end. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, definitely stranger things have happened. But, I mean, I guess since we're on that topic, do you have anything else to add to his, his untimely death? Um, I just remember, I remember it really upsetting me. Um, for a number I mean, you remember, I was just talking about it earlier. I couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint if it was 98 or 2003 2000, or whatever. I think it was in May or late April of 2002. Yeah, yeah you, hit, you hit it. And, um, yeah, I, I just remember it being 
really, really sad. Uh, he has one of the all-time great voices at conveying emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't fake some of the stuff that he sang on Dirt. Yeah, yeah. Um, lyrically or what he emoted with his voice. Same thing on um, Jar of Flies. Um, I think his vocal performance on a lot of the stuff on Tripod was was really weak, and I think they really, really struggled mm-hmm. to get the takes they did. And, uh, Toby Wright, who he, I believe that's the one that he actually produced and wasn't just the engineer on. And I think they, it was a struggle for him. But yeah, mm-hmm. his death, it was really upsetting uh, to me. And I, you know, I was talking to my wife the other day about you know we had this rash of musician deaths a couple of years ago and. I'm a big Prince fan, and you know him dying was big, mm-hmm. uh, was you know a big blow. But um, the, probably the two that have hit me the hardest are Tom Petty and uh, and Lane Staley. And uh, you know Lane was just that, that Dirt album was just so important to me for a couple of years there. You know and those are your formative years, sixteen mm-hmm. through nineteen. I think there's been numerous studies done show between fifteen and twenty the music you listen to, even if you don't like it anymore, when you hear it. It brings you back to a time and a place. Mm-hmm. And they were the first band to kind of, at that time, in that young age, to pull me away from glam. And uh, I would get completely away from all of that for a, for a long time and you know, got into a lot of jam band stuff like that. But they were the first one that kind of made me feel like it's okay not to, if I don't want to just listen to Poison and yeah. you know, Guns N' Roses 24-7. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, they, they played that role with me. Yeah, him dying, though, that was, that was a sad day. And that's, that just shows the profound effect of heroin, you know? I mean, like, to by all accounts that I've read, and especially in that, in that biography, like, everybody describes him as, like, just a sweet guy and highly intelligent, not necessarily driven for school, but just extremely intelligent uh, in his own right, and then just a really, really nice guy, and then... And then just heroin messed that up, you know? So, I mean, I, if there's a lesson from that, kids, like, don't do heroin, don't do methamphetamines... Do mushrooms, do marijuana, you know, but just, just skip the other stuff that can actually ruin your life, you know. Well, and I don't, I don't know a whole lot about his background, so I may be completely wrong in this, but I don't remember hearing of there being like any childhood trauma or anything that you know. Um, no, or, not really. In the book, he talks about his, his parents got a divorce relatively early on, and he had a, um, he changed his name. Uh, his name was it was like Lane Rutherford something. And he ended up. I think that's that's right. Um, I had to. I wish I'd had written that down. But anyway, he um, he had kind of an on again, off again relationship with his, I guess his dad, and then ended up taking his his uh, stepdad's name or something like that. So I mean, not picture perfect, but I don't think there was any abuse. I mean, I think there was just regular te- teenage angst. But then you you throw that in with a little bit of drug experimentation and, and heroin was a big thing in Seattle in that time. I mean, clearly we've already talked about people that got, you know, we, we, the music industry lost to that, to that drug. So, I mean, it was um, probably just a mixture of, of that, you know. I'd like to think that if he had been in a different time and place that it wouldn't have, he wouldn't have come in contact with that, you know. But um, anyway, so um, the uh, w- so we lost Lane two thousand two, and then they, they I mean they didn't know what to do. They kind of went on a little bit of a hiatus. Well, they did, but I I, th- I think it's important to mention at least. Um, Cantrell went on to release Boggy Depot, um, his first solo album, mm-hmm. and it had uh, I think my song. I think that's the name of it. It got a lot of radio play, and you know he had to start from 
ground zero. Uh, and then he went on to put out what I think is a phenomenal album, Degradation Trip, and they eventually released a second part of it. So now if you go by it, it's Degradation Trip Volume 1 and 2. And man, it is every bit as dark as dirt. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot of it uh, is about um, Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a song on there called 3132, um, where he talks about um, basically in high school, he got the person, you know, everybody kind of figured out this guy's not going to live past like 31, 32. Mm-hmm. And uh, a song called Hurt a Long Time is just really, really powerful. But yeah, that's, they did that. And then Mike Inez played in heart. And I think that's important to, to bring up. I have it in my notes here. They've always been really tight with the Wilson sisters of heart who are from Seattle um, and have known them forever. And I, I think Jerry <clears throat> um, kind of looks at Ann and Nancy as like older sisters. And she was on Dean Del, Nancy was, it was on Dean Del Rey's podcast and, you know, when they brought up Jerry Control, she goes, oh, my sweet friend. You know, <laughs> they just have this genuine affection for him. And mm-hmm. they actually recorded um, the um, Tripod album at Bad Animals, which were a heart recorded their kind of big album, Bad Animals. And uh, they were so important to him when Hart got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, McCready, Cornell, and Cantrell all came out and played guitar with them. Uh, and actually, I was telling you this last night, and you weren't aware of it, Hart played an integral role in them getting back together. Mm-hmm. So there was a VH1 honors show, I think that's what it was called, where they were just going to honor Hart, and they had um, uh, different people come on the scene, like Carrie Underwood came on and sang Alone, and um, gosh, there's a country singer a couple years ago, her name's Gretchen Wilson, I think. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. She came out and sang a it's song. like the country kid rock? Yeah. Well, I guess kid rock's not country. Yeah. The female kid rock? Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, obviously she wanted Alice and Chains to come and play. And they hadn't really played. And so they, they don't have a singer. William Duvall was in Cantrell's solo band. So he comes with them, plays guitar, and he sings. And then they have Phil Anselmo sing a song. I think Anselmo sang Wood. And at the end, um, Gretchen Wilson came out and I think sang with heart, and, and they all played Barracuda. Anyway... There was such a strong, just like, oh my gosh, it's Alice in Chains. That played a big-time role in them deciding to do what uh, nobody thought would ever happen, and that's not replace, but have somebody sing for Alice in Chains other than Lane Staley. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, um, no, I wouldn't. To me, Alice in Chains kind of went, I I just stopped following them, really. I mean, other than just listening to their earlier stuff, uh, once, once Lane died, and really probably a little bit before that. Um, I've always had, I've always had profound affection for them. I just, I didn't keep up with them the way that I kept up with other, like I knew what Slash was doing, you know, like I actually kept up with, with, with that, uh, with Guns N' Roses and, and kind of the offshoots of that more so than I did, uh, Alice in Change, which is why everything you said to me was, was brand new to my ears. And I knew, I, I kind of had a casual understanding of how William Duvall got plugged in, but I guess we need to kick off the remainder of the of the albums that were released. And just as a side note, when I was writing this down on my whiteboard so that I could take a look at the agenda for today, I was writing it all down in black and I told myself I was going to actually change colors when I got to post lane that way, just as a visual reminder. And I didn't purposefully do this. And this is totally corny that I'm saying this out loud, but I changed it to blue. And as I was writing the the next line, cause the last one was live 2000. And the next one I was writing, I changed to blue cause this was the first with William Duvall or without lane, I should say. And I was writing Black Gives Way to Blue. And then after I got through that, I thought, 
man, <laughs> what's that about? It was, uh, it was, it was the cosmos telling you you should be doing Alice in Chains podcast. That's right. <laughs> it all just came together. So black did give way to blue, uh, ex- expo marker, but, uh, that was released in 2009 and, you know, there was a lot riding on this one and I don't just mean, you know, cause the band was already successful and I'm sure they could live off royalties for the rest of their lives as far as that goes. But when you bring in a new lane, that's pretty serious, you know, and, in the way that they've handled the band since then, not that he's a replacement for Lane, but my God, he is, though. When you watch them live, he nails Lane's parts. He sounds different, but they're clearly not trying to become a different Alice and Change the same way you go see Stone Temple Pilots. They're not trying to be... The lead singer's not trying to be Scott Weiland. He's just not. Um, I don't even think Scott Weiland was trying to be Scott Weiland and like Scott Weiland and the Wildabouts or whatever he did after STP. But anyway, so to me, a lot was riding uh, on this album for me to continue being a fan because I needed to hear the Alice in Chains that I knew and loved, but they just needed to be a little bit different. You know, it needed to be a different album, but still have that common thread of sludgy and kind of mysterious sounding chords and the harmony. And man, they brought it. William Duvall it was a great replacement, if you can replace Lane. They did, and, and I would have to, if I was, there was a pecking order for me, it would be Dirt, Jar of Flies, and Black Gives Way to Blue. Mm-hmm. Very ballsy and gutsy of them to do this. Uh, and there, there was some, you know, there was some some pushback from the fans. You know, how dare you call this out? Call it something else. Mm-hmm. How dare you call this Alice in Chains? And I remember Cantrell just being like, give us a chance. Right. You know? And this was, what you say, 2008? 2009. 2009. So I distinctly remember this. Um, you know, social media was not what it is mm-hmm. now. Um, you didn't have as much interaction amongst the fan, you know, fans of bands and stuff like that with members of the band. But I remember their own. They had a web page and they posted like a thirty second teaser clip of them recording a looking in view. And I remember going, "Oh boy, this! I don't want to get." too excited mm-hmm. um but um i am and then i started reading that the title track black gives way to blue there was going to be a bonus edition and it's elton john playing the piano on the bonus edition and uh start reading about the album you know interviews and stuff and i think and and, and you to correct me if i'm wrong i think lyrically and musically this is when Cantrell finally put Staley's death behind him. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think he said, "This is kind of a love letter to Lane. It's a goodbye to him, because a lot of the themes that were written about on Check Your Brain are gone from the last two albums, mm-hmm. and it's not as as dark as uh, you know as, as <clears throat> some of the songs on here are. And you know, Black gives way to Blue. I think it's just my interpretation of it." It's Lane dying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, and this is on my top ten as well, We actually, now that I'm thinking about it, we should have just integrated our top ten throughout the discography because I had no idea we were going to take the song of the discography. I think it's great, though. I mean, I'm loving this this history lesson um, for me and for, for, the, for the crowd. But, um, yeah, Check My Brain. This, to me, Check My Brain was the perfect, like, it's actually sort of funny the way that Allison Chains is funny, but to me it's appropriately funny. What he's saying is like, God, California. Like, after all I've been through, would somebody check my brain? Like I can't get around. I can't get. Oh, <laughs> I can't be exposed to all these druggy people again and just all this stuff. Like, please, somebody check my brain. 
But I mean, to put that in a lyrical format and to make it sound great, God, they just, that's such a great song. So clearly I'm giving away my, one of my top tens because I just thought they did fantastic on that one. They did. And uh, there, there's several songs from this album that I still listen to today. Your Decision, mm-hmm. just yep. classic. Um, and you probably could speak more intelligently on this than me, but just classic guitar strumming from Cantrell with, you know, mm-hmm. I guess minor chords. I mean, he loves the minor chords. Yeah. Uh, Let's say your decision, private hell, man. That is uh, that's a, that's a great song. A looking in view, and then of course the uh, title track, black gives way to blue. It's, it's very sad, very somber. Mm-hmm. And if you can find the bonus edition or find the Elton John track, I had no idea he did that. Yeah, so it's it's go- it's gorgeous. Um, and I think Elton approached them. I think he was Elton was a huge Elton John. Uh, I, I don't listen to a lot of his music, but the guy is a music fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everything from like hip hop to, you know, obviously he said he was a huge fan of Lane's. And so he contributed the piano on the bonus edition. And it's very more, it's more stripped down. It's very piano heavy. You, mm-hmm. I'm sure you can find it. It's, it's, it's haunting. I need to listen to that. But yeah, so that, and, you know, and they go on tour. And, you know, I remember there's a, there's a big video you can find them playing at uh, Rock Am Ring or whatever in, um, the Netherlands or wherever that is over in Europe. And on this tour, they were prone to have people come out every now and then and sing. It's like James Hetfield on this particular show comes out and sings wood with them, I think. And um, you're right. William Duvall, he sang the songs as himself, but he sang those uh, Staley songs with reverence. Mm -hmm. Um, And and personally, I think he felt a top five vocalist as far as like anybody that's died and a band has to replace them. Mm-hmm. And he's done it with grace. Um, I think he understood there was going to be backlash. And I think he basically said, I'm not going to engage in the negativity. I'm going to sing the way that I sing and win these people over. And you don't hear a whole lot anymore about people complaining about him. No, it's just Alice in Chains, you know, yeah, it's, it's Alice in Chains. And honestly, they've probably played Way more shows oh, with yeah. William Duvall than they ever did with Staley. I'm sure that's true. And, it's got to uh, be true. You know, they're just. Uh, that, I was just so excited about this album, and I loved it so much, and um, was just blown away that they did it. Yeah, I mean, having seen them live, and sadly, I never got to see them with Lane live, but um, having seen them with uh, William Duvall live, I think two or three times. I don't remember. Um, he. I'm not saying it's effortless for him, but he fits right in the pocket. You know, it's kind of like when Metallica was, was um, you know, auditioning bass players, Robert Trujillo was the only one that, like, Lars and, like, James would look at each other and they're like, uh, he just, he was the only one that wasn't struggling. Everybody else was trying to struggle to keep up. He just fit in the pocket. And I feel that's the way that William is with the band. He is incredibly talented and never looks like he's straining in terms of to keep up with it. He's just right where he needs to be. So I think... This this William gave a, a new breath to to Alice in Chains that could be a band that we just don't even talk about anymore, you know, and it's thankfully something that we we can still go see. So um, so Black gives way to blue. Oh, before we leave Elton John, real quick, you may not be a fan. I'm I'm a casual fan. I've I probably got one of the greatest hits albums, but you need to listen to two albums front to back, uh, and that's the two that I showed you last night that I've got in there. Good Vibra, A Yellow Brick Road, and Madman Across the Water. I've, I've, the, those two front to back. Even if you're not a fan, you the same way. If you're not a fan of Jethro Tull, you just need to listen to Thick as a Brick all the way through, just to understand what in the world everybody's talking about. If you don't, if you if you don't like Genesis, 
just listen to Lamb Lies Down on Broadway just to say you did so then you understand what other people are talking about. Right. It's a cultural reference, you know. Yeah, you're not the first person to tell me that. So. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's another digression. I'm going to get kicked out of the hosting chair if I don't if no, I, you're if doing I don't great. digressing. <laughs> um, so the next album, to me, I am so, so happy that they did not debut William Duvall with Devil Put Dinosaurs Here. I just don't get it. In general, I don't get it. I, I just... I just don't get it. It doesn't to me. It does not fit in their in their in the lexicon of Allison Chains uh, fans the way that it should. Maybe and maybe I just don't get it. Am I wrong here? No, I don't think you are. And I think if I mean this is just complete, just throwing something up against the wall, see if it sticks. I think at this point they had made a conscious decision not to write about Lane anymore, and I think Lane occupied either Lane directly or the effects of his drug use and dying on Jerry Cantrell, obviously Boggy Depot and degradation trip that was, that was hovering over him. And that, that, you know, that was in a lot of those songs. And I think they took this step to move forward for that. And I think from a lyrical standpoint, I think they, he struggled a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, now I will tell you this, I, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of this band. There is one song on there that's going to be in my top 10, but I do think it was produced well. And mixed well. There's a lot of layers on it. There's a lot of textures, um, and uh, there's some classic Cantrell moments on there. But for the most part, I think outside of two, maybe three songs, and I think it kind of was the songs that were the that they picked as singles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this one, this one's pretty weak. Yeah, I can't even say, and maybe I'm being a little bit too judgy about it. I can't even say I've listened to the whole thing all the way through one time in one sitting. Um, which I could probably say that about other albums as well, but I don't even think I've listened to the whole thing two or three times. You know, I mean, just individual songs. So I haven't even listened to it enough to give you a comment about production value or anything like that. I just thought this was an overall forgettable album. And um, even when, you know, they're asking, like, well, why, you know, like, why did you name it Devil Put Dinosaur? Like, the, everything else has got such meaning. Why did you call it that? And it was all. This is where it gets back into the kind of the cheekiness of that can be Alice in Chains. And I think Jerry Cantrell's like, we just. I mean, it's, it's all it was funny. Like, who put dinosaurs here? Like, devil. Did, I mean, it wasn't even. I didn't even get the joke when he was telling me there was a joke behind it. Do you, you know, know the history behind it? No. Uh-uh. Okay. All right. So, um, apparently there there's some um, sects of Christianity or denominations or whatever that don't believe we actually had dinosaurs mm-hmm. and that uh, the devil put dinosaur bones here to make people yeah. question the timeline in the Bible or whatever. And so um, that uh, that's where that came from. And so they heard that story and I think they thought this is kind of funny thing to do. Uh, and, you know, I never have thought as much about what, about their kind of cheekiness until you started talking about it. And I'm like, you know, that's right. They, yeah. Like, like for instance, on the live album, they do what's the song called, like "Sweetheart" or "The Rodeo," or whatever. Oh, um, um, look, yeah. Uh, see if you can pull that up. That's just kind of a queen of the rodeo. Queen of the rodeo. That's just kind of a campy, mm-hmm. you know, song. And so, the, it was kind. It's kind of interesting, you know, because they have this. Most of their stuff is just so dark and deep, but then they have this kind of goofy side to them. Yeah. You know? And it, I always thought it was interesting. If you'd watch interviews of them back in the day, there's a lot of joking around. Yeah. But then, you know, when they got on stage, it was, it was serious. But yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with you on, on this album. Um, 
a lot more misses than hit. Yeah, I mean, but just even just le- reading off some of the the names of the songs, they could have named the album any of these things, and I think it would have fit. Hollow, Stone, mm-hmm. Voices. I mean, how cool would those have been? Uh, Breath on a Window. Eh, maybe that that sounds kind of like a uh, like a a grungy ballad or something. Low Ceiling, Lab Monkey, Phantom Limb, Scalpel. Like they could have named any of those songs, but they picked the dumbest one to call the whole album. Yeah, and I think that probably turned some people off. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, another little side story. This one's actually related to Alice in Chains. So I went to I went to school with the guy who's now, who worked, I think he works for the William Morris Agency or something like that. He's about three or four years younger than I am. And um, he uh, he's basically a music agent out in L.A. And so it's pretty fun to follow him on like Instagram or Facebook or whatever his social media thing is because he'll post pictures of him around you know, sometimes kind of B and C level stars, you know, uh, because he gets invited to a lot of parties. And so this one time he posted on one of his social media accounts, it was he was at Jerry Cant- <laughs> he was at Jerry Cantrell's house using the bathroom, and the toilet paper holder for uh, in the in that bathroom was the MTV Music Awards that they got. So you got, had a little flag man, a little moon man, and so you lift the flag out and you put the toilet paper in there. <laughs> I thought I thought that was great, <laughs> and I don't I still don't understand why he was at Jerry Cantrell's house, but I'm basically you know six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I'm like I'm like two degrees away from right. Jerry Cantrell at this point. <laughs> So, anyway, so now moving on to the final album uh, of that we're going to talk about in their most recent release, Rainier Fog. And this is what I had to confirm right before we started this because, um, you know, uh, Alice in Chains is from Seattle. And I mentioned, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm one of the co-hosts of the Mad Madrigals podcast. And uh, on our very first episode, we were talking about um, music venues and just different things. And, and we, we brought up Mount Rainier. And Mount Rainier is uh, when you're coming into the approach. When I'm flying, when you fly into Seattle, it you just see this beautiful, beautiful mountain in the distance. And even the pilot, like the one of the the few times a pilot's ever come on the intercom, and every once in a while they say, "Hey guys, if you look to your left, you'll see the Grand Canyon." That sort of thing. For the most part, pilots don't really tell you geographical things that are going on. But Grand Canyon one's a big one, so they say, "Everybody, look out your left window if you're there, and you can see the Grand Canyon." Whatever. Well, this one, the pilot like turned on the thing and he's like, hey, guys, this is um, one of the most beautiful approaches you're ever going to see. Yeah, over to your left is Mount Rainier. And um, so we mentioned that on the Mad Madrigals podcast. And, and I said it then. And that was the first time I'd ever come in contact with Mount Rainier. And then when this came out, I clearly read it as Rainier Fog. But then I questioned myself because then I heard Jerry Cantrell talking about it when they went to go record it. And they said, well, why did you name it this? He's like, oh, you know, um, because it's an a thing in it. In in Seattle, you can see Mount Rainier and that sort of thing. And I thought, is it Rainier Fog or Rainier Fog? Is this a play on words? Like, what is this thing? So I actually had to, I watched some National Park Service stuff <laughs> right before we got on this just to confirm, you know, that it was actually called Mount Rainier, but this is Rainier Fog, right? So anyway, long intro to that. But what do you think about this one? I initially didn't like it. I thought uh, most of the songs were kind of, kind of sounded the same, mid-tempo. Mm-hmm. Sludgy at times, um, a little too sludgy. It actually, my opinion on it is is on the upswing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a particular song like uh, "Never Fade," I love that song. Yeah, um, I think it's a more mature Alice in Chains, and so I think um, I I think it'll continue to grow on me. I've listened to it a lot more in the last couple of months. 
Um, I just have such high expectations for them. Yeah. A lot of times that I don't think um, I don't think my expectations are fair. Yeah, yeah. I was all about this when the moment it came out. I had a big thank God moment that this not devil put the dinosaurs here part two. You know, like I was so, well, and it took them a long time to put it out. Yeah, it was a long time in between. So, yeah, I mean, and thank goodness it did. I mean, because they, to me, this was a perfect uh, sequel to Black Gives Way to Blue. And so I was, I didn't have that down moment like you were talking about. And you're on the upswing. I've been on the upswing about this, and and quite frankly, I want to listen to it more because I haven't given it enough of a chance to to really sink in my head. Um, love the one you know, probably my favorite one off the album. And quite frankly, had my top 10 been my top 11, I probably could have. And I could argue I could probably take off one of these, and maybe I can do that when we get in the back and forth of the top 10. But I think this is a solid effort. I, I love the packaging on it. I love the fact that they give the little bit of a play on words. That's the kind of humor I can deal with. You know, just a little bit of play on words, make it subtle. You know, let's, let's, not, let's not chuckle it up too much. You are a grunge band, you know. So, um any closing thoughts about their discography? We did not mention Music Bank, which we mentioned before, but Music Bank was a three-part thing. Well, actually, we mentioned it a little bit. And we didn't mention some of the like the greatest hits kind of things because yeah. those aren't releases. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. If you're just repackaging something, the lipstick on a pig sort of thing, I mean... Right. Yeah. Uh, nothing really to add to that other than I think they're about to take some time off. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, they've had a, like a big multimedia thing with this album with like some uh, short films. And, yeah. And they like released, that. um, it was, it didn't each one have a video? Yeah. And, and I think it's a... kind of horror related. I, mm-hmm. I haven't really, I haven't watched it. I haven't watched any of those, but yeah, I think they're, they're on tour with Corn right now, but I think they're about to, I think I've read that he said we're going to have to go away for a little bit. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, there's, there's cycles with these bands. And I mean, if you think about like Led Zeppelin one through four got released, I mean, Eat boom, one boom, year boom. apart, you know. Yeah. Um. It's it's the cycle for bands now is pretty much you release an album, you go tour that album. If it does well, you do it for a couple of years, and then you go back to writing, and it's about a four or five year cycle, you know. Yeah. So I'm not surprised. And you know, and they're not getting any younger. Yeah. And I think they're probably a lot wiser. I think that staying on the road. Hmm. Um. I know for the Black Crows in 0506, they stayed on the road too long. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Mark Ford had to leave because of it. Um. And so I think. Um, financially they're probably all okay and so um play when you want to play and relax when you want to relax but um i i'm i'm looking forward to more new music i I, i'm pretty sure they're going to record new Mm -hmm. music so um i'm looking forward to it and like i said I'll, i'll get my hopes up real high every time i hear that you know, there's a new Alice in Chains album coming out, but I, um, I've been thoroughly enjoyed the discography discussion. Oh yeah, me too. I mean, this is uh, the, you're gonna have to title this podcast when you put it out there. It's just like deep dive in Alice in Chains. It's not the top ten. Right. It's not what we decided. What right. we first thought it was gonna be, which we are actually about to get into the top ten. And in the interest of that, why don't we just do a little bit of a back and forth? Because we've already covered these a okay. lot. Um, so we can give each one of them a flavor, but that way this doesn't turn into a four hour podcast. Yeah. Um, we can just do, uh, I'll do one, you do one and okay. kind of do them back and forth. Now mine are not in any, well, they're kind of in a chronological order to which I became appreciated them, mm-hmm. not necessarily chronological in release, but I didn't rank them like one through 10. I didn't that. rank mine one through, I don't like doing that sort of thing. Like it's very hard other than like, again, comfortably numb off of pulse, number one song of all time. I guess it's very difficult for me to say, yes, clearly this is the number one. Because there's usually things I like different about different songs. Mine are approximately in chronological order, um, mainly just because that's the way I was trying to think through. Like, I would go through each album and think, oh, yeah, this is my one from this one and that sort of thing. So um, 
I guess I'll kick off since I'm already talking. I already alluded to this one, but to me, Man in the Box, off that first album, um, I will never forget that video. Awesome, awesome. Uh, uh, from being a guitarist, I, I mean, that was just an awesome line to learn, and that made you want to buy a talk box just so you could recreate at least part of that. And so we actually used to play that song in a band that I was in in high school. I didn't have the talk box, or at least I had one, but I didn't. I could never figure out how to get the thing hooked up. Um, which Jerry Cantrell actually released a talk box with MXR, so that you don't have to have between a head and a cab, uh, which is the hard part of having a talk box. You it becomes a speaker uh, like a speaker um, in and of itself. You just direct it into your mouth uh, with the tube, and so uh, it's being a young artist you just don't you can't afford all the crap that you have to have to have a talk box and so he's got one you just step on and it works oh cool but anyway man in the box uh for me uh that's my first song in my top 10 yeah i'm gonna catch a lot of grief because i don't have that one in my top 10 but um this was a very very hard list for me i went through several edits i got it down to like 20 and mm-hmm. I was like, I don't think I can get it down to 10. <laughs> this morning, I just uh, I, I pulled up my list, and I just made some snap decisions. So my uh, first one I'm going to talk about is the song that made me a fan of them, What the Hell Have I, off the uh, Last Action Hero soundtrack. Uh, this has a driving rhythm to it that very few songs of theirs have. I think of uh, Damn the River and uh, mm-hmm. Them Bones uh, come, come into mind first. But um, they... they you know, it doesn't get played all the time, but when it does, it gets a great reaction, and it's a unique-sounding song. And I kind of, a lot of times, when you have really popular bands, at some point, tend to gravitate to the more unique-sounding songs. Not because I don't like the popular songs, just because they're so overplayed. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one, for me, it's the song that made me a fan of the band, and so there's no way I could talk with them without about this. Talk about this band and not mention this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that song too. It's, hard, it's you're probably not going to name a song that I just say no. That definitely wouldn't be even in my top thirty or something. But um, but yeah. So I'm totally with you on that one. So my next one is down in a hole, and basically you could take for my next like four or five. You can take the Dirt album and just say, okay, this one, not that one. This one, not that one. So yeah, down in a hole for me. Um, fairly, it was one of those that as a budding guitarist in the early '90s. It was an easy one to play on guitar, relatively easy, and, and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for easy. When, when you're learning to play an instrument, you kind of want to sound like somebody else, especially off of Unplugged. You pick up an acoustic guitar, you don't have to figure out any effects. You just play it. And uh, and so that was a relatively easy one for me to, to pick up um, back then, and so I have, a, I have an affection for it uh, for that reason almost alone, but it's still a solid song. I have it in, I have it in my top ten as well, and... It's a song that honestly uh, serves a couple of purposes for them. It's a beautiful song that uh, that sounds great. It also draws the women in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's very haunting. Um, I think it's some of uh, Cantrell's best uh, vocal work, mm-hmm. harmonizing with Lane. So I had that one on my list. But uh, I'm I'm like you. I have several from um, from Dirt, and I'm going to go with one that's kind of a a deep track for them, Junkhead. Mm-hmm. Now this is the first one I can remember really getting sludgy, slow, methodical uh, guitar playing, uh, a just a very dark song. I've got some of the lyrics here uh, in the chorus. You know, it says, "What's my drug of choice? Well, what have you got? I don't go broke, and I do it a lot. Um, just um, you know, the life of a drug dealer mm-hmm. and a, a, a you know a drug addict." And uh, this one is very, very frank. 
Um, I think I've read he's where they said this spoke to where we were in life at the time. Yeah. Very, very dark song. Didn't get played a ton. I think it may be on the live album. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, I think they played it at I think the, it is. I think they played it at the singles uh, soundtrack release party. But yeah, it's uh, on the live Yeah, album. just uh man, just dark, 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 but uh beautiful at the same time. Yeah, and in fact that's one of those that I I've, I've sung out loud to myself before and didn't even realize what I was saying. You yeah. know, because like, I'm just singing the melody and I'm not really thinking about how deep it is. It's, oh, the the the, the chorus is just perfect it's a greatly written song, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, hey, you know, what's my drug of choice? Well, and that's what's well, great. I'm not saying that's a light, you know, it's a light uh, musical part, but it's not. It doesn't seem deep and dark and trudgy. And some of that contrast between dark and light—that's what makes Crazy Train great. You've got that dun dun, dun dun, dun dun, dun dun, and then it gets to the verse, and it's got this ticka ticka dan ticka ticka dan ticka ticka dan. I mean, it's just a very high, just upbeat thing. And it's that contrast of light and dark that makes that song great. If the whole thing was trudgy, you you might not pick up on it. You know, you might not appreciate it as much. Right. So to me, this song. Uh, or the song that you just mentioned, it kind of has a piece of that dark lyrics, but not exactly uplifting music, but still not. The darkness of the the music doesn't match the, uh, the lyrics doesn't match the music, in other words. So my next one, and this is, if I had to pick one of my top ones, Rooster. Um, this is one of my favorite Alice in Chains songs. I've played it in a couple of cover bands that I've had. We've actually recorded our own version of it. Um... It's just a fun song to play. It is just, it's creepy dark to me. It's based on a a true story, which was written by Jerry Cantrell. Um, uh, He, I'm sorry, it's based on a true story, period. It was, it's by Jerry Cantrell. His father was in the military, and so they moved around a lot. And he was in Vietnam, and so he didn't even meet Jerry until Jerry was three years old. So, wow, did not know that. Yeah, and so when it says, uh, you know, Gloria, send, you, send me pictures of my boys, that's him writing... Um, that's him riding home from Vietnam and wanting to see what his kids look like or his kid. And, and, and so, um, that's, I mean, that's just powerful there. And he talks about, um, you know, I can't remember the lyrics, but like, uh, nets against mosquito death and, um, uh, talks about, you know, things buzzing by your head and that sort of thing, bullets and all that. And so, um, I don't know. I just, I just love that song. I think it's a fantastic one. That's one that's kind of got ruined for me, um, by um, the radio and um, I don't know it uh, at the time when uh, Dirt came out I really liked it I find myself fast forwarding through it now if, if it comes on the radio really or, yeah that's interesting I know it's kind of odd but uh, it's just one of those things I, I just it's not intentional I'm not one of these people that's like oh I hate the hits it's mm-hmm. just sometimes to me when a song gets associated too much with a band and it gets overplayed. A great example of this is you shook me all night long with ACDC. Mm, yeah. If I never hear that again, I'm okay. <laughs> now, Rooster is, doesn't irritate me that much, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a, a brilliant song. Mm-hmm. It's just it's been so overplayed that that gets in my head, and I kind of turn on it a little bit, I guess. Yeah, and I, you know, I mentioned this to you yesterday. Um, you know, if, if we say we're going to do a top 10, like of Guns N' Roses or something like that, um, which this is when we talk about the, you know, the Illusion albums and redoing them or whatever, um, you, I wouldn't, like, the, my top 10 would not match the greatest hits on Guns N' Roses. And in general, I think for most bands, my top 10, like you talk about Pink Floyd, there's a few, sure. I mean, absolutely, that would be in, like, their greatest hits, like Another Brick in the Wall Part Two, 
um, comfortably numb, of course, and things like that. I wish you were here. But by and large, it wouldn't look like the Greatest Hits album. And mine, for this band, looks like the Greatest Hits album, and I'm not ashamed of that, you know? <laughs> but I definitely, I didn't try to make that happen, but it just it just kind of happened. I didn't look at it to see how many how much overlap there was, but I'm holding it in my hand, and, and there's a lot of overlap. <laughs> Well, I haven't I haven't looked back at the board behind me to see what your top ten are, so I'm I'm sure yeah. uh, you're going to surprise me with some. But I'm going to stay on dirt, and I'm going to go with uh, "Rain When I Die," song number mm. three. Very very interesting song structure on this one. A long drawn out intro mm-hmm. that kind of sets the tone for uh, the the song. Very haunting song. Um, you know, not the most uplifting, which they don't have a whole lot of uplifting ones. But uh, when I first got that album, this is one of the first songs I really gravitated to that I w- would hit repeat on on the the back button on the uh, CD on the CD player in my car. This and Rain When I Die with the I mean uh, Down in a Hole were the first two that really grabbed me on it. And um, if you put a gun to my head, there are days I would say this is my favorite song on that album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I just looked at, I'm looking at best of the box just to kind of confirm because now I'm feeling kind of sh- sheepish uh, <laughs> now that I've acknowledged that my a lot of my top 10 are on here. So yeah, um, I'll tell you when it's not one, but this one's on there as well. So Angry Chair. Um, I just like it, man. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. I just like it. It's just, it's it's aggressive, but it's also kind of like in the pocket. Like, I don't know. It's just great. All right. Since you have everything in front of you, this is one of the ones that Lane helped write the music to no oh, did it oh i don't know uh, i don't it seems know like i've heard that uh yeah this song is great and th- i could have i could have put it in my top 10 and not had an issue with it uh my uh <laughs> one of my very best friends uh nathan if you're listening uh he'll appreciate this he uh he and i'll text each other just random song lyrics uh at times <laughs> And uh, I want to get in on that. <laughs> once a month, I get, what do I see across the way? And I'll respond, hey, you know, and uh, he and I uh, numerous times, all the time, uh, text lyrics from this song. But uh, yeah, this is a great one. And I think this is one of the ones when they played it on like Beavis and Butthead, Beavis and Butthead, like, yeah, an angry chair, you know, <laughs> go crazy. Over. Yeah, uh, just another great song off an album that has just a number of great songs. So yeah, I'm looking at the songwriter's credit here. Lane Staley is the only one on yeah. there. So that's interesting. Now, why can't I make money doing this? Kyle? No kidding, right? I mean, oh, I mean, you can. We're going to get some advertisers. That we, I mean, I'm not even a part of this. <laughs> uh, I guess now that I've got the co-host chair or, yeah. or the co- the host chair, I'm, I'm pretending like I'm I'm owner of this thing. But uh, yeah, you need to get some advertisement, get some product placement. Yeah. Uh, you know, play some other bands' music. So um, anyway, that was mine. Um, I don't know what number you're on. I'm only on number four because you had a you had a couple that were repeats with mine. But um, do you have what's your next one? Damn that river. Damn that river. Off of dirt. Um, man, this is one speed limit that your speedometer goes up whenever this one is on. Yeah. Man, just uh, out of the out of the barrel, wide open. Um, probably one of their faster songs. And uh, I'm not a. I mean, I can. I always say on here on a good day and play GC and D on guitar. Mm-hmm. To me, this opening riff sounds like it'd be a lot of fun to play. Yeah. So this one, um, Them Bones and Dan That River are, are really early in their sets, the time that I've seen them, and it's just like, I'm with you. It's like, if you want to introduce yourself to the crowd, you play this song, you know. I'm fairly confident Them Bones was the first one on both the sets that I saw, but this one's very well, early. It, side, a sidebar on Them Bones, you've got to be real careful with your stereo settings when you uh, put this album on. 
with because it leads off with them bones and it just there's no just ah yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and, it uh, jumps at if you. you don't have it you don't have your stereo set just right you're going to go through your skin uh. but uh, anyway <laughs> yeah so I, i've always loved a uh, damn that river all right, so I've got another one that, once again, is on Best of the Box. So this could actually, I mean, if anybody just doesn't want to listen to this podcast, you can just put a disclaimer at the beginning. If they just put on Best of the Box, they'll have mine. Uh, so I've got wood. I like the aggressiveness of it. I like the, I mean, I just, I just, lo- I don't know, like, I, I don't want to start singing it here, but I, it, it translated very well to Unplugged, and it just, to me, sounds great on the album as well. I like it as well. I don't like it as much as a lot of other people do. Uh, I think the last chorus on it, where Lane just kind of kicks it up a notch, mm-hmm. is just man, it makes the hair stand up on your uh, on your arms. Yeah, I think it was originally recorded for that single soundtrack, and then they put it on this. And uh, that MTV singles premiere was a big cultural moment. Yeah, at the time. And this is one of the songs that they played, and I think they make a cameo in the movie. I think they're somewhere in the background. I know the Pearl Jam guys are, and I think Allison changes at some point too. I've actually, oddly enough, never really seen the whole movie. I've just seen either. clips of it. Yeah, but man, I had the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this—that's one of those that uh, if the sound the soundtrack could be bigger than the movie. Yeah, you know, um, there's two movies. Uh, I don't know if y'all have done a podcast about documentary or like what you should watch if you're into music or whatever. We've done a rock doc. A rock know. doc, okay. So, I mean, to me, and this isn't really documentary, of course, but it's um, but a little bit. I'm Russell Crowe's life, right? Um, and so singles and also almost famous. It was not, not, a, not a documentary, but a movie, you know. Top five movie for me. Yeah, so I've, I've got, I just ordered that um, because it's been years since I've seen it. And it's really odd how into music I am, and I didn't own it. And so I said, you know what, this is less than $10. I could waste that amount of money on anything, so I'm right. going to buy this. <laughs> so. All right, so I'm going to go on for a three-song run here from the Jar of Flies EP. So it's a seven-song EP. Really, in my opinion, it's only five songs on there because you have Waylon Wass, which is instrumental, and Swing This is terrible. So three of the five <laughs> you know, made my top ten, and I really could have put a fourth one on there, and it's not going to be the one that you think, but... The first song I have off of that is I Stay Away. And I think this is yeah. one of the more unique songs they've ever done. The song structure to this is really odd. So the first verse, there's two segments to the verse before they go into the bridge and kind of the chorus. But when they come back to it for the second verse, it's just one segment. It just goes, tears that soak the callous heart. And so you have this kind of in the background, this uh, string arrangement going uh, it's it sounds very mellow at first, and you have uh, one of the better vocal performances of Cantrell and and Staley, in my opinion, on it. And then the um, the the chorus gets kind of kind of funky, uh, fuzzed out guitar, and it, uh, he's playing some really cool riffs. And then it's a very very simple sounding solo, but for me, it, the solo on it adds so much to the song. And then, of course, uh, at the end, you have Staley, you know, really belting out I Stay Away. They had a pretty cool video of this. I think the video was like Claymation uh, at the hmm. time. And uh, just a unique sounding song. And uh, I've heard of them playing it live very rarely, and I've watched some of it. It's one of those songs that doesn't translate well live because obviously they're not going to have the strings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just uh, kind of some of the, I guess, the time ch- signature changes and, and, and some of the vocal Vocals on that would be hard to pull off live, but uh, yeah, this one's always been in my top ten. Yeah, cool. 
So uh, did you name? Did you say you're gonna do a three song run? Did yeah, you it's, I have. Yeah, you just do them. Yeah, go oh. into those three because okay. I've actually got two off the same. Uh, okay. Is it off a of jar of flies? You said. Yeah, yeah, so, I've got two off that. Um, no excuses. Uh, this is a top two or three song for me. Yep. By them, I uh, mentioned before the little drum fills that Sean Kenny does on it. I think are just fantastic. And so for me to no- notice drumming, it is you know something has really happened there. Uh, this was the the lead single I think off of it. It, it was a big MTV hit. Uh, really up tempo. Uh, it seems to be kind of a lighter lyrical uh, content than a lot of their other songs. Uh, it's just uh, it's it's great. Uh, the song took them kind of honestly to another level mm-hmm. with uh, stardom and and, uh, and album sales. And then the last song I have off of that is the ballad "Don't Follow." Uh, and I think we talked about this on our when we did a ballad episode. Um, this song, for whatever reason, has just always moved me. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, one of the songs where Cantrell sings a few verses and then Staley kind of takes over at the end. Um, I think they're playing on nylon strings, aren't they, on this? Mm, or probably, something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just song has just always done something for me. And it's kind of slow and mellow. Then toward the end, it gets kind of almost like a country sound and... Uh, but anyway, uh, man, this one has just really always stuck out to me for whatever reason it's always resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. Now I love that song too. Cause I've already said, I love this whole album, but I've got two off this album. One of which you've already mentioned, which is no excuses. Um, great album. And in many ways, like, yeah, I think you're right. It took them to another level and it was another level, like kind of like an Eric Clapton tears in heaven. And I'm not equating the two songs, but just like, it was a song that wasn't like anything they had done before, like Eric had done before. And it was just like, then everybody loved him for a different reason. I think they picked up fans because of this song alone. Um, they picked just, up a lot of casual fans. Yeah, exactly. So I've got that one and then also Nutshell uh, from this album. I probably, quite frankly, could have put more. And if you'd give me a top 15, I probably would have stuck a couple more on here. Um, but anyway, those are my two from from this album. Yeah, with Nutshell, I like it a lot. And I know that song really resonates with a lot of people. And I would say possibly with, with kind of Joe Q Public, if you started, got just a casual fan, name some Alice in Chains song, tell them to name three, I think Nutshell would wind up on there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's by and large because of Unplugged. Yeah. And so Nutshell, having uh, mentioned that, is the only one so far on my list that's not on the best of the box. So and there's going to be one more that we get to, but only because it wasn't out yet. So I've got, um, is it my turn? Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and hit two off of the Tripod album, off of Alice in Chains. Grind. Man, there's just something gritty, beautiful about that song, man. So my and I don't remember the lyric, but something to the effect of "so my teeth don't grind." I mean, you can just tell there's just there's angst in that because like grinding teeth. If you've ever heard somebody do it, like actually do it, like when they're asleep or whatever, that just communicates something that's on a deeper, you know, something's going on with them. You know, uh, there's anxiety or there's something that's just making them literally grind their teeth. Um, it, it's just like it's like fingers on a fingernails on a chalkboard uh, kind of feel for me. So anyway, this is um, I think the the chorus on this song is great. Um, it's a very straightforward, hard rock, heavy, uh, not heavy metal, hard rock grunge song. Um, just love it, <coughs> love it, love it to death. This one got, uh, it got swiped here at the last minute this morning. Yeah. I mean, it, it that one for me, um, I would, I would probably swipe wood or so and, and throw another one on there. The grind is definitely on there for me. And then the next one off this album is Heaven Beside You. Um, that is, that is just characteristic, creepy, great line, great lyric. Um, 
translated very well over to the acoustic side of things. And um, that one may be the second one. Heaven Beside Me is not on the best of the box. I've got two so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh... That was a that was a song I think was written about either an ex wife or an ex girlfriend, mm-hmm. um, and that got a lot of play. And um, it was I believe it was on the Unplugged album. Um, and yeah, it was. Yeah, it got, it got a lot of play. It's interesting. Um, you know, you could argue that was the biggest song from that album, and it was not a mm-hmm. Lane Staley yeah um, song. So uh, yeah, I. Uh, I can't I can't argue with any of those with either one of those. Like I said, grind is one of the ones that this morning I was like I've got to get down to ten, <laughs> and so he got cut. Um, my next one is one I know we both have and we've already talked about it, so we'll just kind of mention it and keep going. Just check your brain. Off uh, is that on your? That's my that's my very last one. Yeah, yeah. black gets way to blue. Just a phenomenal song. Uh, just really, uh, I think I actually picked up some new listeners for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a modern sound to it. Uh, just a, a great song, and that was a great way to kick off the William Duvall era. Yeah. So that is my last of my top ten. I don't know where we are with the back and forth, but if I if I had want room for one more, I really wanted to represent Rainier Fog that way. At least all the albums would be represented except for Devil Put Dinosaurs here, and I know you got one of those on mm-hmm. there. But from Rainy or Fog, I would have put the one you know. Uh, just to, if I had a top 11, I'm already kind of cheating here. I would have, I, pro- I probably would replace Wood with that one. I think I'd feel comfortable if I was trying to make one from each album. Yeah, if I pulled one off that, it would be Never Fade. I think it's like song number nine or 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like that. Uh, so I have one more, and I'm not going to talk much about it, but it is off Devil Put Dinosaurs here, and it's Voices. Uh, I think this is classic Jerry Cantrell uh, uh, guitar playing, classic Jerry Cantrell vocal melodies, uh, just really a well-recorded song. Uh, it was the one when I listened to it the first time through. This I was like, this is the one that has stuck out to me. And A lot of times my initial impression on a song on an album, it can change over time. Mm-hmm. The album's kind of weak, and this one has always stayed in the forefront, so... Uh, that's the song I listen to. I listen to this album. Yeah. Uh, at times I'll listen to Stone, but other than that, uh, the other songs I, I don't care for. But yeah, so voices off Devil Put Dinosaurs here. So, and I got to admit, when you know, I had to pull that one up right before we started, <coughs> right before we started recording, just to make sure I knew what it was, you know. Um, and I agree with you. I mean, I couldn't put it in my top ten because I'm too immature in my thought on that song at this point because I just heard it this morning again for the first time, sort of. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's a solid song. I really like it a lot. I probably was too dismissive of this album to really appreciate individual tr- tracks off of it. So I need I, I need to be honest with myself and and give that one another listen. The, probably that whole album another listen. So I'm done with my top ten. Do you have any more left on yours? You good? I'm good, man. I I would say if I were gonna do some honorable mentions, uh, them bones would make yeah. it. Uh, I really like Rotten Apple off Jar of Flies, the mm-hmm. opening song. I think that is some great bass work mm-hmm. by Mike yep. Inez. Um, and uh, let's see, um, Your Decision in Private Hell off of uh, Black Gives Way to Blue, I think are really good. Yeah. Um, you might at some point, I could put uh, Bleed the Freak maybe mm-hmm. off of Facelift. I didn't have anything represented off Facelift. but uh, That would have been my number two off <clears throat> Facelift for sure. Yeah, yeah. So basically the, the whole Dirt album I could – find a way to work on there. And, um, you know, there's a couple, there's a couple of good ones on tripod, but, um, for the most part, that song, that album's very disjointed. It's kind of all over the place. And it, some of the stuff is just to me on that album. I didn't mention this when we we're talking about it. Some of the stuff in the middle is just kind of all sounds the same. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
uh, I, I'm hoping in a couple of weeks to talk to Toby Wright again at the Rockin' Pod. Uh, he's going to be there. I didn't specifically sign up for an interview with him because we have had him on before, but uh, <clears throat> like usually happens there, there's a chance it just it may just happen. And I, I want to go a little bit deeper with him because we only had him for ten minutes. I want to go a little bit deeper with him on this unplug thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think That's that cool. I think that would be fascinating. But uh, other than that, man, Allison Chains is a great band. Man, they, so they certainly have their place in history for them. I mean, for uh, they changed music. You know, in a in a big way for a lot of people, and um, they they inspired other bands. I mean, we didn't talk about this one, but off of which one was it? The Godsmack. I mean, the song Godsmack off of is that on Dirt? Yeah. So I mean, there's a band called Godsmack. I mean, so it's just like you know that you've been impactful when another band says like you know comes together and says you know what what should we call ourselves? And then they pick a song out from a band that they love call Godsmack, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a new, that's a new word. That's a portmanteau. Like it, it's, it's a new word. Mm-hmm. They introduced that word to us, um, us being humanity. And so I, I think that's just profound when you've got, you know, I mean, I love airbag. If any chance I get on here, I'm going to talk about airbag, but I mean, airbag named their band airbag after, after Radiohead's okay. Computer album, the first song on there. And it's not even the best song off there, but it's a great band name. I mean, it's, I like it. And so, um, Anyway, so to me, they've Allison Chains has certainly got a place in history uh, for for them, and also a place in history for me personally because this is a band that I definitely would not want to have done without. Are they a top ten for you? Um, I would. Ooh, that's a tough one. Probably, yeah, probably. Same here. Yeah, I mean, could, I mean, and it would be hard to argue with that considering, like, I literally you're staring at all, you know, what eight or nine albums that I've got here in front of me. That the, I think the only ones I don't have of theirs are the ones that are the greatest hit thing i've even got best of the box but i don't have like the greatest hits like master's collection or whatever those things are and i've got several i've got dirt on vinyl i actually bought dirt on vinyl twice because like when we talked about doing this before i'm like oh i can't believe i don't have that i need to order that and of course i already had it i just didn't look (laughs) but um but i got that one and i've got mtv unplugged on vinyl i don't think i've got any of the others on vinyl I was I want to get Jar of Flies on vinyl as much as I like that one i just hadn't pulled the trigger on it yet well if i were to base uh my top bands just strictly on number of minutes to listen to, they're easily top five. Mm, yeah. Um, with like Pink Floyd, Black Crows, Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, probably Oasis. But I think overall they're for sure a top 10 band and at times probably could get as high as four or five mm-hmm. and at times probably as low as 10, but they're probably always going to stay around uh, in that, in that zip code. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, if you, Allison Chains is touring with Corn right now, I really want to go, go catch him again. I'm, I'm happy to say that I've seen him several times in concert already, but um, I'm just not going to be able to make it this time around because I've got work travel and stuff. But, um, but listen, I really appreciate you letting me host this episode of Digital Kill, the Radio Star podcast, but you're going to have to do the outro because I have no idea what hashtags are and at symbols and all that kind of stuff. So all take right. us away, man. Well, thank you for hosting. It was kind of fun to be on the... Uh the other end, I was telling uh, Kyle earlier, um, when you're when you're doing these and you're kind of in charge of setting the pace and and everything, you can't just sit back and relax like I have for this one. You have to kind of constantly be thinking, what's the next question? Mm-hmm. What's um, um, the um, uh, you know the next topic we're going to? You have to make sure the thing is recording. That levels on you, the you monitor. You have to make sure everybody <laughs> sounds good. So uh, Chris will be back with me next week. We uh, are going to 
uh, well, I'm not sure what order I'm going to release this one in. This either may be uh, before uh, our Supergroups episode or after our Supergroups episode. I'm not quite sure of that. And then we will be going to uh, the Nashville Rockin' Pod in August. Uh, August the 10th is the actual day. If you're in and around that area, uh, please come. It's going to be great. Michael Sweet of Striper is going to be there. Dave Ellison of Megadeth. You know, you're going to have one of the founding members of the Big Four is going to be there. Uh, I think it's 32 or 33 music-related podcasts. Uh, there's going to be a pre-party the night before at the Nashville Airport Marriott. Uh, that's where the whole thing is taking place, actually. And you can go to a Rock and Pod Expo. You can just put it in the, your Google machine and, and find all that information out. But it's going to be fun. We're going to be there. If you're there, come by our booth and see you. We'll have some free stuff for you. Uh, we met a lot of people last year, a lot of people that uh, we've stayed in contact with. So uh, really appreciate uh, if you're around. Come by and say hello to us. Chris and I will be there. Our, our buddy, Caton, who has done about as many of these podcasts now as Kyle has, uh, kind of unofficial third and fourth member uh he's going to be there with us and uh we've signed up for five or six interviews uh we don't know which ones we're going to get yet but uh, i think those are going to be interesting and we're probably honestly going to record a couple of podcasts there just us with other podcasters um we have a couple of topics uh kicking around so that's going to be fun uh thank you everybody for listening as you know we have a twitter at, at digital killed we have a facebook page uh under digital kill the radio star podcast and we have instagram under the same name and uh, let's see, lastly, uh, go to iTunes and leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. If you do, screenshot that, get it to me somehow on social media, and I will put something in the mail to you to thank you for that. Uh, once again, thanks to Kyle. It's always fun to have him on. Uh, always appreciate it. And uh, I've got to go drive through a hurricane <laughs> to get back home, so uh, I kind of got to get on the road for that. But uh, thank you for listening, and Chris and I will be back with you soon.